This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Simplicio. I mean, Paul. <laughs> Hi, it's Evan. <laughs> I think Paul has a, a take on our topic today, which is uh, piracy. I guess this is um, not just piracy of the uh, swashbuckling sea kind, although I'm very interested in that, but also of the music kind and the audiobook kind and the PDF kind and, um, you know, pretty much everything where somebody says, you don't have a right to that. And um, then they try and sue somebody or maybe they claim in court that, you know, the, the stuff that people are worried about, the stuff that the FBI warnings, remember those on the front of a VHS tape or on a DVD where you have a forced screen where you have to read about all the threats that are going to happen to you. Notice how those oh, all went oh, away oh, on Netflix. You notice how that happened? Like there's none of that bullshit anymore. I, I still buy DVDs and Blu-rays, so I still see them a lot. Yeah. One of the reasons I don't uh, look at my DVD collection is because I don't like those forced um, threats scenes where it make me, make me think about all the crimes I'm going to prison for. Um, I, it, it, is, it is kind of bizarre like that, that, that that was such a big thing because they didn't even have it, them in it, the movie theater, right? General, I, it is still a oh it is still a big thing, but I do remember I've seen in a couple between a, a couple movies them talking about that, mainly as a turn to people trying to record the movie in the theater. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, I mean, I agree that in general it's less of a thing now, but it's now easier. Paradoxically, it's easier than ever because because of wider access to to high-speed internet and it's easier for the more some prevalence. and it's harder for others right so i mean it's easy it's so easy one of the podcasts i was listening to this week um i love how podcasts work right generally there's no worry ever about piracy even though there are a lot of uh subscriber only podcasts like mr jim moon has one and there's uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast has one, and there's a bunch of others, and I subscribe to the two that I know about. <laughs> um, and nobody ever says, you know, I, please don't share this with with anyone else, because really what they do want is you to share it so much that th- that makes someone else join up and sign up and become excited about uh, contributing to the podcast and so the extra stuff that comes is sort of a bonus rather than um you know a big stick it's a a, we when we were talking about doing this topic evan you you were talking about how important post-scarcity was to this story and i think you're absolutely right today piracy really has almost nothing to do with seeking profits it's almost all to do with the opposite. So transaction costs is the podcast I was listening to. It says the answer to all the, I think it was econ talk. says the answer to all the, the, uh, problems, you know, when you're getting asked for your dissertation, what, what causes this problem? It's always transaction costs. 
And that's actually what holds me back from giving Audible money most of the time is the transaction costs. Or even um, thinking about how I do this podcast. Um, I've got an audiobook we're gonna we're gonna talk about. I could go through the trouble of getting a whole bunch of uh, free codes and then sending them to you and hoping that you all have Audible accounts, right? And if that all worked perfectly, I just spent like two days doing grunt work for no reason. That's all transaction costs. It's not monetary costs is the concern. It's the transaction cost, the time, the time it takes. And not just the time for me, but the time for you. So when, Paul, you say, you know, it's easier than ever, absolutely. But you have to know exactly how to do it, right? Do it. Right? If you don't know what a torrent client is, if you don't know where the current version of the Pirate Bay proxy site is, you, you're you're toast. There's no way you're, it's easier. It's actually much harder. And things like Netflix and Audible yeah. make it super easy for you to uh, consume your material, although I, I reject that that uh, that phrase, consume media. Um, I'm all Consumer, about sharing, yeah. right? So I'm all about, like, this is a great book. You should all read this book. That's why I spend all my time making PDFs. PDFs, yes. And putting out audiobooks that I've edited out of LibriVox and uh, convinced publishers to give me a, a, a you know an audiobook for... Um, uh, it's because I'm all about the sharing, not about the I'm gonna make so much money because <laughs> I <laughs> I don't really want to make money. I want to I want to listen to books. So that's I think how we got here. But uh, uh, I, it was also prompted by uh, a thread I saw you participating in on Paul um, about people talking about pirated eBooks um, mm-hmm. and how they were losing their contracts with their publisher um, and that they thought that. I assume that they thought that the they were losing money from these these uh, pirated editions. Yes, that's that's how this conversation basically started from the point of view of authors who feel that the that that the proliferation of pirated eBooks of their work is a is a drain on the market for books sold by by the publisher and therefore and therefore losing uh, sales and losing contracts and losing and lose, losing their ability to publish through the publisher mm-hmm. with academic books that, that's what I know and you know so many of these books that get published you know they're dissertations they you know a, a publisher an academic press will, basically distributed through libraries. That's like the, the model, right? Mm-hmm. So they'll print like 200 of them, sell it to 200 research libraries, you know, and they'll sit there collecting dust until a graduate student picks it up, right? Now, you can you can get torrents to get thousands of these eBooks now. Like, you know, there's there's really good torrent, like the Marxist history library or something, which which I downloaded. Now, those books I never would have bought. No one's going to buy them. No, it's just because I don't have access to a university library right now. I need to use that. Yeah, it, so I don't see how, in that case, how it distribute, how it reduces revenue. Their model already is: we sell this to two hundred, maybe three hundred university libraries. And, and I, I feel less less mm-hmm. about that than say a publisher like X Y Z who publishes a book by author author A. It winds up torrented. 
the ebook sales as a result, theoretically as a result, because it just obviously are reduced. And so, oh, oh, it looks like looks like author A didn't sell so many books. Okay, we're not going to pick up book two in author A a series and that's the end of author a's career until they change names which is unfortunately a a big thing in publishing and tries again or just gives up and goes back to uh doing doing a data entry job for uh microsoft or something mm-hmm. this, that, is a, that, this is a problem that uh, authors like donald westlake complained about in a book called the the hook this is back before uh um you know ebooks were a big thing but he he was talking about how the basically Amazon and the big big companies that were in competition with it, you know Barnes and Noble. Once you get in the system, uh, this is a really funny uh, book because it's a a book about a can't get a book published, right? It's a pretty a pretty good book too. But he says once you get in the system and they see your numbers, um, they see well his last book sold a hundred thousand, so we're going to order eighty thousand for the next book, and then his last book only sold eighty thousand. So now we're only going to order sixty thousand for the next book. Right? Yeah, it's the ratcheting effect. Right, and and that uh, problem where you know you have to change names um, <laughs> is a significant problem. But is it a ca- is it caused by piracy or is that just a parallel effect? And I would say, uh, looking at what people who are pirating are doing. I don't see anybody out there saying, oh, I'm going to screw the authors so hard because none of them are doing it for money, right? The people who are po- in modern day no, piracy. No, no I'm, I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing intent to try to screw the author, but I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying the subsequent effect of what they do is to screw the author. Even if that's not their intent is, Oh, I want, I want everyone to read just Willis's a, a tale of Philip K. Dick, and so I'm going to pirate this book and make it put it on every torrent site available. Have everyone do it do it properly. But then when when, when publisher ROT says, "Well, no one's buying this book. We're not going to pick up your next book, Jesse. Sorry." Yeah, that, I don't know, Paul. That's this is the world we live in, though. It's, that is the world. And this we is something Wit really, I think, does a really good job of describing. It's like, oh yeah, it's so this, what, what, what's the name of that I, book you're talking about? Oh, how music became free! Right, a journalist. I don't even know his first name. Stephen Stephen Witt. Stephen Witt, and the subtitle is something like "The Turn of the Century and the Patient Zero of Piracy." This is about the music yeah. industry, and it spends a lot of time in this guy uh, Del Glover, who is just a working class guy in North Carolina. North Carolina. I never heard of him before. But he was responsible for a huge number of the leaks back in like the Napster years and mm-hmm. the early years of Torrance. And he was connected with the RNS, all this. And it didn't, you, and he also made a living on the side burning DVDs and CDs and just selling them out of the trunk of his car. But yeah, you never got the sense he was intentionally trying to, to mess with them. But I think what he does a really good job of showing is just this collective nature of, of the theft. And so when the RIA started targeting individuals randomly, saying we're going to take you to jail and sue you for a million dollars, this this didn't work because it's it's not a individual crime, really. Mm-hmm. It's something we're all participating in every day. I didn't read that book. No I, one's not a problem. I read. I'm reading right now. It's quite good, actually. Um, the one called "Democracy of Sound: 
Music, Piracy, mm-hmm. and Remaking of American Copyright in the 20th Century. This is a book that is about the history of the copyright changes from the, the, the original uh, provisions in the Constitution of the United States up until the modern era. And it goes through the Napster era, but I, I haven't got that far yet in the book. And um, what's so interesting is it's it's not what you expect, right? We expect to see sort of similar uh, phenomena or arguments ba- back in the old days, but 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 it's quite different. Like one of the ones I tweeted about was how uh-huh. you the copyright would only be things for that were readable by human beings. That's not actually how they phrased it back then, but basically it meant if you had a player piano, um, and it has a bunch of, uh, you know, on the spool, the paper spool has a bunch of holes in it, you can't actually tell what music is on there. You have to put it in the machine and press play. And anything that was machine based, uh, was free for copying. That's just how the law was. Um, and they tried to change it for years and years, and it didn't. It didn't work until like the 60s, the 70s, and uh, some reforms in 1909. And it is just like the the whole copyright of music industry basically starts with sheet music, right? <laughs> Which is human readable because it's encoded in language. But if we think about today, not even today, right? Because it's all MP3s and it's absolutely not human readable. But even like if you have a, uh, a CD, you can't read that with your eyes. And a record, you can't read that with your eyes. And a magnetic tape, you can't read that with your eyes. You can't even read it with your fingers, right? So <laughs> they thought back then that all of this should be under not copyright, but under um, patent. Um, and if you weren't doing something innovative, you know, changing the technology, you didn't get any protection. And so one of the loopholes, a loophole makes it sound like it's a bad thing, but one of the rules that was going on in music industry was that you could like license any piece of music and play it just as long as you paid a nominal fee. Right. So this is why radio stations could play music without writing a letter to the uh, artist who might have owned the music originally or the uh, usually in the case is the, the music company, the publisher, writing a letter to them and saying, I'd like to license a broadcast of this Beatles song and uh, play it on the radio. <laughs> like none of that you know, happens. And the reason it doesn't happen is. Thank God it doesn't happen. We wouldn't have ever had anything broadcast, right? The transaction cost there is horrendous, just mm. horrendous. And yeah, that's where that's where Wit sort of ends up because the the move to YouTube then kind right. of we go back uh, to that. That's good. Let's talk about how YouTube is is this. It's it's full of piracy, but it's not mm. generally for profit. Although it could be for profit. But it's well, but also, people try to make money off of ad, some people try to make money off of ads off of YouTube. So yep. for some people, there's a profit motive. What percentage of creators on YouTube actually like make enough for like a living? They don't have a regular job. Very tiny. And th- yeah, th- this is just like just less this year, right? I had my my account demonetized. Mm-hmm. I'd made like six dollars, I think, over all the content I'd put up. But many, 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 many more people. Who are put a, put out a lot more content than I did, 
uh, lost their account. And that's basically one way of dealing with with knocking down the profit motive, right? Is well, if you can't that's get, why I think it's, if you can't monetize your account. That's why I think it's such a nice. I mean, aside from YouTube taking their huge piece off the top, mm-hmm. I mean, they're essentially exploiting creators, I suppose. But I mean, the the basic model of YouTube seems such an interesting type of almost communism in this, you know, from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs definition of it. Right. Which I always think it's funny that China doesn't allow YouTube because (laughs) it seems to be a communist model. I could most of these creators aren't making money doing it. So they're doing this essentially because they know something and they have some knowledge Mm -hmm. and they're giving it, or maybe they're giving their time. If they're just like slapping lyrics onto a music video, but they're still creating something. Right that they're able to create and then people take what they need freely. It, it's like libraries work on that same logic, yep. I guess. Yeah. And the, the curation is, is really interesting because I spend a lot of time on YouTube looking for things that are not advertised, you know, not on the front page, not in the recommended section. But if you, fr- mm-hmm. if you put the right quotation marks around it <laughs> and you, you maybe take away some of the words that you want, you can actually find a massive archive of cultural history that is hidden from the main, you know, mainstream of YouTube. If we think about what YouTube is, it's, you know, people reviewing phones and people telling you how to unclog sinks and people, uh, companies putting out YouTube, uh, music videos and YouTube now does its own television shows, but there's also old television shows. Right, like t- television shows that are not available on DVD, never released on DVD, that have been sitting uh, idly in archives, if they're even there at all. And this is where you know you, you could talk about um, the the actual principles. Why why is why is piracy, if it, if we want to use that word, a good thing? And I think it's a massively good thing, as opposed to a massively bad thing, which I think is you know where a lot of people start from. And and that's the preservation of a cultural he- a legacy, a, you know, a, a kind of historical documentation. One of the things that's mentioned in this book, um, Democracy of Sound, is mm-hmm. um, a whole bunch of facts about the Beatles that I had no idea about. Uh, they they did it for uh, this book is covers a lot of other bands too, but. Uh, I'm not really a music guy, but I did like the Beatles when I was a kid and I, I bought their albums, you know. Um, but did you know, like, the Beatles had uh, another version of Get Back, you know that song? Get Back to Where You Once yeah. Belong? There's a, yeah. there's a racist version of that. I had what? no idea. In fact, the whole title makes sense. Um, it's called the No Pakistanis version of Get Back. So get back, get back to where you once belonged. Stop taking people's jobs, right? It's an anti-immigration song. And it's like, what the hell? I had no idea the Beatles would write a racist song, right? Now, is is that racist? I I don't know. It's certainly anti-immigration, right? It certainly sounds bad. But how come that's not on the official albums? It's just not. Now, you can get it. You can get it. It's available if you go to the pirate websites. I went and searched. I found it. And I was like, holy cow, hey, sure I have no idea. Right? Now, yeah, I, I think... oh, it, go on. the sanitized version 
of the Beatles is the one that is produced by their own record company. The one where they said, maybe, maybe we shouldn't even put this out. And, you know, Apple, I think it was Apple Records, which is funny because <laughs> eventually they make a deal with Apple. Remember when they, you guys remember when iTunes got the Beatles? Yeah, I remember. That was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was a huge deal for Apple and Steve Jobs and probably for the Beatles too because that was the one group that they couldn't get, right? Because they couldn't make a deal with Columbia because they weren't with Columbia. They weren't, you know, with uh, DECA because they weren't with DECA. They they had to make a deal with, you know, the surviving members of the Beatles. So the fact that there's a, a pirate or not, I guess that's a bootleg version of this song that they recorded uh, or someone else recorded while they were singing it. Um, and it's out there and, and you could listen to it, but you can't listen to it officially. It's fascinating. And if you were a more interested person in the Beatles than I am, which is a hell of a lot of people, one of my uncles is absolutely obsessed with the Beatles. Um, you would probably want to have a copy of this album, but even more interesting, get this, um, on December 17th, 2013, there was an official release of all their bootleg stuff. It didn't stay up for more than a day. December 17, 2013, they put up all of their bootleg stuff, or at least as much as they had, right? And then they took took it down. Why did they do that? Why did they put it up for half a day and then take it down? So, so, the, so the pirates would get it? So they could secure their copyright. Oh, okay. It was going to go public domain if they didn't oh. make a publication. Ah. And so what copyright, what this really tells you, it's about control, right? It's all about control. And literally, yeah. it's in the title, about control. There's another book I read. Um, uh, I don't think it was – did you read The Invisible Hook, Evan? That's the. I I, I don't think I could go one. through it real quick, but yeah, I I know the argument. That, that's about uh, regular pirates, uh, yeah. sea pirates, and how they did their. I don't think it's in that book, but it, it's around that era when I was reading a lot of economics books. Um, one of the things about the early history of copyright is is it's kings. What what happens is kings say to each other, um, "I control this land." And you control that land. And since I control this land, I can control what happens in my land, including things like who gets to have a printer's license, who gets to have a license to print certain things, right? This is about control. So the, the kings back in the old days, they would say things like, we need playing cards, but we don't want to have too many playing cards because I want to make a profit on the playing cards. So the king sells the license to sell playing or print playing cards to one particular printer, and that guy has the exclusive right to print playing cards for that country. And that's a monopoly, right? That's what copyright yeah. is. It's a monopoly. It says one person has control, or one entity has control, mm -hmm. and that's it. So if you think about, like, who... Who wants to hear this bootleg Beatles song? Every Beatles fan. Who has a copy? Only the people who got a bootleg copy. The White Album. You guys know about this 
album, right? Of course I have, I, of course I have a copy Everybody of Everybody knows the White Album. Do you know why it's called the White Album? Because it's white, right? I mean, it doesn't yeah. say the White Album any, anywhere on it. It just says the Beatles in, sort of impressed into it, right? The reason it's white is because they were doing, that was their first uh, Apple music that was under their own first their own first publication and they were doing a tribute to the bootlegging that was always had white albums white sleeves right and then somebody would like uh stamp the name of what whatever was on there so there's a very famous if you go to bootleg and wikipedia there's a very famous bob dylan album called uh it says uh gww on the uh, it's just a white piece of paper with an album inside of it and says GWW. And that's Great White Wonder. This is like his big uh, bootleg album. When people were recording him, they would say, this is an amazing song. How come this isn't on your your latest uh, release? And he said, I don't know, man. I uh, I can't do a Bob Dylan, but um, they would put it, they put it together and released it. This is the, the crazy thing is it's, Copyright is all under the cultural uh, subconscious, but it actually influences what gets produced. And and that's why when we get into a new medium like YouTube, I think you just see so much different stuff because the mm-hmm. media just changes the way people act, right? And the people, the things that people produce, like there aren't that many YouTube shows that resemble regular television shows right well at least they, well they some, some of them tried at the start but then realizing the 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 advantages of the of the new form yet that that idea is kind of, kind of went away pretty quickly right and there's no need to have a particular length uh in fact the the youtube video length seems to be about maximum 10 minutes right for most videos it's, yeah, but even with Netflix, you see that there's no longer the confines of like the 20 minute comedy or the. Yeah, HBO was doing minute. a bit of that as well. Um, you know, yeah. you would have a an hour and 15 minute episode of some show, you know, maybe it's the season finale or whatever. Um, but Netflix, yeah, is a little more loose with that. You know, it, they, they sort of have half hour aiming format and another 50 minute format, but there's no. Like we're gonna we're gonna get this and we're gonna format it and put it on television. That <laughs> nobody thinks that anymore, because the predominant media is not television anymore. And so when we get, I was thinking a lot of this this cultural preservation thing you were talking that's about. Very that's very important. That's I mean, what that's what I do it for. for. That's what libraries, you know, are, are supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? And of course, with the internet, we can do it better. So Wit talks at length about a website I didn't even know about a torrent site that I wasn't familiar with. And it was kind of a reaction to the Pirate Bay, mm-hmm. but it just wanted to do music. It was called Oink. Okay. Do you know Oink? Oh, I'm not a music guy, so I don't know that one. Yeah. But the problem they said with like the Pirate Bay was it was just everything, all the files. And I said, we just want music, right? Mm-hmm. And again, these are just working class guys doing this, not making any money off of it, really. Mm-hmm. But they really, the, the founder, and I forget his name, he, he ended up, being caught, I think, or having the website shut down. But his goal was this universal catalog of music. Right. Every single piece of even obscure music would be recorded, 
right? So you'd have the complete catalog of, of all music ever created. That was his kind of ambition. And he got pretty close to it before they shut it, shut it down. It's, it's kind of a shame. It is. A, it's a, it, it is a real shame. And it's because they're not in competition with, you know, pop music of today. They're in competition with, uh, basically burning down libraries, right? Mm-hmm. It's about preservation. It's about scholarship. Like, uh, it's what uh, yesterday I was playing a game randomly with some, you know, it's, it's kind of like chat roulette where you, you have, you just find somebody on the internet. To, it matches you up with to play a game with. And, mm-hmm. and he says, uh, how come he didn't answer? I said, oh, I was, I was working because I, I, I switch while I'm waiting for the thing. Right. And I said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I, I was, I was looking up, uh, copyright renewals. <laughs> I said, why are you doing that? And I'm like, well, there's a lot of things out there that need uh, to be brought into the public domain. Well, they're already in the public domain, but we don't know that they are. And he says, oh. And I said, yeah, there's millions, millions of things in the public domain that people don't know. And he said, millions? No way. And I'm like, no. <laughs> millions and millions of things in the public domain that nobody knows are in the public domain. But the the very fact that I have to do all this work to find out and hope that all my searches were perfect to bring it into the public domain is kind of a result of trying to lock down everything forever. Right. So if you're, if someone like you is not doing this, are the, the estates still getting paid even if something is in public Absol- domain? Uh, no, absolutely not. That's the whole point is that mm-hmm. it, it is that that transaction is gone. Right. But when you put up a uh, arcane and very complicated copyright system, which is what we really have all over the world, with ever extending terms, with yeah. even even yeah, that's that's bad too. But what you get is mostly orphaned works. That is, there's something out there, right, and nobody knows who owns it. And the reason that happens is most stuff is not worth uh, making movies out of. Most stuff is not worth, um, you know, turning it into a TV show. Uh, I've been going through the 1968, 1969 uh, Marvel comics, um, you know, going through every issue. And the only way I can do that is by having a, um, a pirate version because I, I wasn't even alive then to collect it. I can go through the 80s comics a lot easier, although I don't have all of them. Um, and what I, what do I find? I find, uh, oh, this issue of Daredevil matches exactly what the latest Netflix, you know, it was Foggy Nelson running for district attorney, right? Huh, I remember that episode of, uh, of Daredevil. That's because it was a 1968 or 1969 issue of Marvel. So that 50 year old comic book, oh no, wait, there's more than 50 years, right? Uh, 50, yeah, the yeah. 50 old comic book yeah, is now, yeah, it's is now, now, now new again. So that has value somehow. It's, it's preserved its value. Stan Lee's barely alive. If he's, I think he's still alive, right? He's barely he's alive, alive and he can make some money off it, but almost nothing else from that era has any value as a percentage, but it doesn't have any monetary value, but it has a ton of scholarship value and a lot of cultural value. Like I can't tell you how much time I spend looking at old magazines and saying, oh, my God, people forget everything. <laughs> Every 10 years, they have to learn everything again. 
every 20 years, they completely forget about how these arguments are all were held, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago or 50 or 60 or 70. So that importance of preserving for the cultural purpose, you know, like the just the fact that, you know, the Beatles who could do no wrong had a, a kind of racist song is kind of important. Even if they didn't, you know, publicize the fact that they had this song, they thought maybe it was a bit off. They still did it. And the proof is in the song, not in, you know, you know, the fact that maybe somebody heard a song once where the Beatles said something racist. This is actually something you can listen to and say, oh, my God, it's actually there. And you can hear how they said it, not just the printed lyrics somewhere in a, an old textbook about, you know, studying this song. You, you really need to have a good access to everything if you want to understand the world, right? That's, that's why China locks down YouTube is not because of the, um, because of copyright, right? It's because they want to control the message. Yeah, of course. And control the history. It's, it's, it's really funny though, because they could, couldn't they get around VPNs? Everybody Chinese. I know in China uses a VPN. Well, my understanding is that most, that's where the Chinese don't. They, they're just happy with the, with what they have. Now, richer people, the middle class, they're more likely to have VPNs. Oh, the young students seem to have it. I mean, not, not all of them, because I'm mad at like the Chinese. My students kids. all do. Yeah. They're all planted to America, and they're all from fairly well off families. But my understanding is the vast majority of Chinese, even if they have internet access, they don't bother with VPNs because they kind of don't know what's there. And mm. They're just content. I mean, it's a, a lot of it is not in Chinese either, right? You, you, if you yeah, they if can't you go to really, YouTube, you're not going to find a lot of Chinese content. Yeah, but the Chinese line was like, well, we have part of what they claim is that we're trying to cult. It's like a protectionism almost, right? Yes, we're trying to cultivate our own options. Right, and not, what we have is just as good, which only makes sense from a Chinese point of view. If you're a, if you're a expat here, you know it's obvious YouTube has so much stuff they'll never be on the Chinese equivalent. Mm -hmm. Youku, it's called, or something. Mm -hmm. You know, when I have VPN troubles, I might go there and just listen to Chinese pop music or something. But yeah, you can't find anything. It's like a fraction, a drop in the ocean compared to YouTube. Hmm. Um, so that argument that it's we have our own equivalents is doesn't really so so so, so, it's so, this chi so this Chinese version of YouTube they basically curate every single thing on there. Yeah, it's it, you'll you'll go to like a popular song, and there'll be two comments on it, which wow. leads me to think that pe you know people just don't bother or they're all being you know cleaned up. I'm just imagining the amount of effort it takes to actually curate every single item on well, a YouTube-like channel. They have cubicles right? full of people searching yeah. chat room and stuff. Yeah, but that, yeah. That, that, they're pulling down things rather than – so it's user-uploaded right. content, right? It's the same as YouTube, yeah. but right. but yeah, they have more, more people going to censor things. Even with bots and algorithms and whatnot, that's a massive effort. I think it's fairly labor intensive here. Yeah, there are, there's literally rooms of people working 12 hours a day, and just Wow, that's 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 a very dark future. That's a that's very a dark dystopic uh, 
technological future right there. I wanted to tell you guys an anecdote that happened this week. <laughs> um, just that's related to is, is why I I think you know my argument is bulletproof. Basically, that you know if you're not doing piracy, you're you're making a mistake as a as a human species. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I last week we recorded a show with um, Wing Jun. Um, and, uh, and then he's working on this project. He's trying to get a Patreon going, which I've been encouraging him to do because it's just such a good idea. He's got the great voice. He's got, you know, a massive following for his computer game work and he's the voice of Lovecraft. So he should be doing that instead of recording for, you know, people on Audible, uh, where he gets a very slim percentage of what might be the sales because it's a monopoly, right? And so uh, he uh, he called or he, he text chatted me and he says, "Do you happen to have <laughs> uh, an old audiobook that um, that I produced right for myself uh, for his own uh, recording website? Um, he had a, a audiobook website with downloads and stuff, but it went stale and he lost his files and he had a computer crash and now he doesn't have his own recording." I said. I'll, I'll look. And I looked on my hard drive and I did not have it. So, so guess what? I went to the audiobook piracy website that I used. And I got it. I copied it. And I sent it to him. So that he can sell or at least get patrons for his own copyrighted material. This is the thing. Is... It's about preservation. It's all about preservation. It's not about, you know, I'm going to screw those guys so hard. It's not I've, about... I've, I've, I, I've I, I, I know that. that's not you, Paul. I'm just saying I'm not, that is the perception. That's not my argument here. That's the perception, is that piracy is about hurting artists. And no, the whole history of the music industry, as far as I can tell, is about the music industry... Screwing artists out of the royalties, so it's it's the it's kind of the uh, bootlegging is a slightly different story, but um, modern day ebook piracy, ebook audiobook piracy is not about the you know trying to rip off writers or audiobook narrators. As far as I can tell, and I look at I read what people are writing and what I'm doing. And it's a bit. It's about the opposite. It's about the. It's it's the same thing. Why people bought bootleg albums? They want to hear more Beatles. They want to hear more Bob Dylan, and they can't get it. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make a confession here. Mm-hmm. So, so as listeners probably know, I do get audiobooks for you when we're talking about the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the way I've rationalized this to myself is that. In doing the podcast, we're reviewing it, and what you're actually giving me is a review copy. I wouldn't go Absolutely. ahead. Absolutely, it, it is I, a review but, copy. But 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 the thing is, I wouldn't go ahead and give this book to to Fred or to Chris or any of my other friends just on the spur of it. Whereas you might, and sometimes, especially if especially if like I have an extra Audible credit to burn, I will just buy the book that we're talking about i've done that with especially with the paul andersons because because i feel i because i do feel guilty that um i'm and, and paul anderson's a kind of a weird case because paul anderson is deceased and now recently karen's deceased so 
the, the family is gone, but so I feel, I, I, I always feel a little. But uh, at some point, about so we, we not have check to things fall into the, the public domain, is what I say. Well, well yes, if they, ha- if, 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 the, if, the, if the library has the copy and et cetera, like, et cetera. Let's say I can afford it. Affordability is not a problem. You know, no, it's, I, it, it's just my is my, my, my library t- stealing from the families. No, no, but no, no, because because the library bought a copy. Me taking a copy without remuneration from from the estate. I mean, I mean, at least in doing the podcast and doing the review, at least I'm I'm. It's it's like me getting review copies of books as we did on yep. uh, recent recent arrivals. I get plenty of those, but I don't go ahead and say, okay, I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to the used bookstore and sell all these yeah. for money because that would be totally unethical. And lots of these books these days have on the sticker, please do not sell. But I know people who do it because I've gone into half price books sure. and I've seen them there. It's like, what are people doing? Well, that's we got to get rid of them. That's, but that's the thing. closer to the bootlegging. I, I, it's, it's about the distribution, right? So the library buys one copy. Yeah. They buy one copy and they, you know, maybe a hundred people read. I don't know what the stats are on a library. Yeah. Book. Well, we know, maybe it's read 200 times, right? So it's just cents, pennies per read, right? And often, with, this is what Wit talks about, often with these, with, in the early days of Napster and Torrents, there were smuggling out of CDs from factories and stuff to get the early release. But a lot of times people just bought it and then, you know, uploaded it. Yeah, no, that's, they got that's the majority of, of the pirates that I, I see, like, like there are people who do camming, you know, that's where they go into the movie theater and they sit down. This is basically bootleg for a concert. You go in with a microphone under your jacket, right? And you record the concert live or the other way to do it. You go into the movie theater with a, you know, a camera and you set it right in front of you and you record the movie from the screen. The quality on either of these is generally pretty poor. And so unless you're getting a live, live, uh, concert, it, most people are not willing to put up with a cammed version of a movie. They'll just wait for the DVD. But once the DVD has been released, somebody breaks the encryption and uploads it. And why are they doing that? Because they're not making why are money. Why doing that, Jesse? Because they love it. They just love it. Yeah. They, they do it for love. I mean, they might do it for, you know, a sense of a, a accomplishment, too. You know, like I... Like I get proud of the fact that I just I just passed 5,200. Oh no, I I got exactly 5,200 PDFs. I'm proud of that. I didn't make any of those those stories that are listed there. I didn't write any of them. But the fact that I brought them into the public domain that makes me feel good. But that's not a kind of profit in the sense of like uh, someone else could profit in the same way uh, monetarily. It's not about money. It's about um, I love movies. You know people. Uh, there's uh, here's a great example uh disney song of the south this is a uh based on um a series of stories uh about brer rabbit you know brer rabbit yes um brer rabbit's a, a figure out of uh 19th century um white folklore black yeah um legend kind of folklore it kind of comes from black Folklore. It was like yeah, I think I did a, a show about a white guy who right? record, like yes. got it from black folklore. Right? Uh, Joel Harris, I think is Chandler yeah, Harris. Yeah, right. Joel Chandler Harris. Um, he had a black a nurse, I think, who told him stories, and then he created a Uncle Remus character. 
who tells these stories, and they're just really delightful stories. But um, they're racist. That's what people think today. Or at least that's the perception. The movie that came out in 1948 uh, is considered racist somehow, um, even though it's the first movie with a, a, a black protagonist, a black main character, um, uh, you know, who's actually played by a black man. Um, but because it's problematic, you'll never see a Disney official release. Uh, Disney doesn't prosecute the hell out of the, the version that's on archive.org that you can download and watch. Because they're kind of proud of the fact that it's a it's a wonderful movie. They just can't officially release it anymore, right? Mm. Because in the same way that the Beatles can't officially yeah. release their racist song. Yeah, I I have a I have a girl, so there's a Taylor Swift song that's been kind of reformed and purged this way. So because I have a young girl, I, I know Taylor Swift. Right? Okay, I have to listen to it with her. So one of her, I think it's from her first. CD picture to burn. There's there's a line in there where she's basically like, it's just, she's like a petulant teenager in that stage of her career, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, if you do you do this to me, I'll I'll just tell your friends you're gay or something. Wow, right? That's the original lyrics, and those have all been replaced. So if you go to YouTube, the official release, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, they took that that reference out. <laughs> that's a very that, that's a recent thing example. to do or a Soviet thing to do. <laughs> You know? Yeah, but the, 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 that's the, or the Woody Guthrie. Right? The, this, this land is your land, right? There was the for a long time I couldn't get the, the like the lefty version of this land is your land. I mean, the, the whole song is kind of lefty, even in its base lyrics. But there's a couple of verses about private property, about the the relief office, and and the Great Depression. Much more sharp social critique. Uh, but most yeah. versions of this land is your land don't have these, right? But it, it wasn't until YouTube that I was able to really get the the real true copy of, of the song. Yeah, and, and that's not uploaded by the official channels, right? That's somebody who had a copy and says, oh my God, this is so valuable. Um, people mm-hmm. are going to be so happy to find this. I uh, I will admit to uploading one... Uh, I, I admit. I'm happily, happy to admit. I uploaded a, a um, short film. I just happened to have from uh, X Library Sale that I, I bought on VHS years and years ago. Um, it's called Halmi, uh, Halmani, and it's it's basically um, kind of a propaganda film about treating newcomers as human beings. Um, and it's about this girl who gets a visit from her grandmother from Korea, um, and it's got, like, one movie star in it who, you know, went on to become a movie star. But the important reason I uploaded it is because it's basically been excised from reality. There is one, if you search for this movie, there is one mention of it on a massive library, you know, one of those massive lab- library cataloging systems that says what, who has copies of what movies. You, you must know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about, but I can't. Yeah, WorldCat or something like that. Yeah, WorldCat, that's it. So <laughs> there is one mention of what on WorldCat, and it says there's like... I think two libraries somewhere in the world that have copies of them. It's on VHS. It was never, it's never going to get a DVD release. It's never going to get a, you know, digital release. It's a short film. that's kind of propaganda for showing in, you know, classrooms. It's not designed for any kind of commercial life, but if I throw it in the garbage, which is what I will do with all my VHS tapes at some point, it's gone. 
So in uploading it to YouTube, where it'll get like two hits in the next 20 years, I'm doing kind of uh, a preservation that really I think is just pure goodness. So I don't care if I get a copyright strike on that one. Uh, they'll pull it down, uh, maybe delete my account from YouTube. But I did my best because that's unfortunately the I'm, I don't know how to upload YouTube torrents. I don't know how to do that. If I did, maybe that'd be a better way, but I doubt it because it's it's not searchable, really. Pirate Bay doesn't have a great search engine, right? They've been hit too many times, yeah. and there's no money in, in in torrenting, right? So there's no nobody who's able to work on that code and make it better. But that will be gone yeah, I, if I don't upload it. When you read it, is this idea that there was a, a moment where it seemed like the recording industries were going to like kind of win this battle almost, part, partially because of just the cost of the transaction costs. Mm-hmm. You know, after the golden age of Napster, when a lot of these sites were shut down. It really was hard for a couple of years. A lot of this music, you know, there were things trying to emulate what Napster did and things like that, but were harder to get to. And Wit talks about how it kind of went back to the old RNS days. What's RNS? YouTube comes and and kind of remakes it. What what was the RNS? RNS is one of those decentralized groups of pirates, I guess. Oh, okay. Yeah, that people would would kind of contribute with their whatever they could leak, right? And I don't know the text behind it. I think Wick does a pretty good job trying to explain the tech all the way from the invention of the MP3 to the to all these torrents work and things, but he's a journalist, right? He's not a not trying to write a technical manual. So, Anyways, I got a history story for you, Jesse, for on copyright infringement. And I, I just looked it up from a, a, a history page. So Eli Whitney and the Cotton Gin. So here's what this website says. So while farmers were delighted with the idea of a machine that could boost cotton production so dramatically, they had no intention of sharing a significant percentage of the profits with Whitney and Miller. Instead, the designs for the cotton gin were pirated and pirate plantation owners constructed their own machines, many of them improvements over Whitney's original model. The patent laws at the time had loopholes that made it difficult for Whitney to protect his rights as an inventor. Even though the laws were changed a few years later, Whitney's patent expired before he realized much profit. So, Eli Whitney didn't make any money from the cotton gin. Fascinating. The pirates. And, mm-hmm. and of course, well, I don't um, know if that- other people profited because they the mechanism right made it much easier for people to do a lot of work, right? Yeah, but sure, slavery wouldn't die out. It looked yeah. like for a time that slavery was dying. It was not economically viable in Virginia anymore. Mm. It was the cotton gin which allowed the cultivation of cotton in the West and the South that led to the survival of American slavery for another 50 years. Yeah, I've heard that theory through that, yeah, the cotton gin basically perpetuated slavery by making cotton production more possible and therefore needing more more uh, human chattel. So Eli Whitney, what well, a bastard for helping us well, with technology. Well, that, well that, that's, 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 that's the law of unintended consequences. I mean, he wasn't thinking, mm, I'm going to perpetuate slavery by making it easier, make cotton more uh, – easier to produce it's just a matter of that was the i mean it's like the idea of predicting the automobile but not predicting the traffic jam 
in, for science fiction art. Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I mean, basically, yeah, the perpetual slave was the, was the traffic jam from the invention of the cotton gin. I um I want to give another uh, story from history that I think Paul will appreciate. Okay. Um, I don't know how big a fan uh, Evan is, but um, a really good case for piracy being a good thing is Doctor Who. How many episodes of the original Doctor Who, not the one that's on television today, the original from 1963 until what 1989 or so, um, were lost? And how many a have lot. been found again? And how many of those have been found as a result of private collectors who are recording off of television? And when they're not recording uh, video off of television at a time when it was almost impossible to do, but recording audio off of television and then they sell the sell they give that audio back to the bbc who then goes on to animate the missing scenes and missing serials to reconstruct episodes of a television show that is absolutely beloved by uh, i mean my me and my friend who uh you know, went on to be a he went on to be a lawyer, specializing in torts. By the way, spent every Saturday night, uh, starting at midnight, usually just after Saturday Night Live ends. There would there was a broadcast of Doctor Who from KVOS in uh, Bellingham. Uh, a you know a a, seri- a a set of serialized Doctor Who episodes into one. I don't even know what they're called. One mega episode. Well. We record that and put it on VHS tape because who knows when we're ever going to see it again. Little do we know now that, you know, you can get those uh, digitally and much better on DVD. But we had no idea that that would ever VHS tapes didn't exist back then when they were being broadcast. And eventually they started to be. But that activity of being a fan, not intending to sell this material, you know, out of the backs of trunks and trying to cheat the BBC out of its massive profits. It has nothing to do with that. It's all about preservation of the good. I, When I was nine years old, I did that not only with Doctor Who, I did that. You remember Carl Sagan's Cosmos? Sure. I, I, I had a cassette player sitting next to the television to record the audio from those, from those episodes. I did and, that and, for and, Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is a better radio drama than it is a, a television drama. Because um, the the oh special effects aren't that great, but the audio is amazing. That's that's mm. an interesting idea. I never thought of that. Babylon Five is a radio drama, but yeah, but I mean, but like even in the days of BHS, the you know the prisoner, right? Mm-hmm. The both of you. Um. So one weekend, one weekend, Channel Fifteen, New York City decided to broadcast all seventeen episodes of The Prisoner. Uh, my B, my VCR got a lot of work out that day, and no I doubt. wore out those tapes because the prisoner wasn't available. I'd never seen it before. Hadn't the next time I saw the prisoner in any medium was ten years later, and and in VHS tapes, and then eventually DVDs. So it's like that's the only way I could watch the prisoner was on my recorded tapes from. From way back when, I wasn't even to tell to sell those. You evil but. pirate, you, I, I, you monster! So let's 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 go with uh, 
let's go with a, a definition. Let's go with a where I draw the line, and and that just goes back to the whole review copy thing of you giving me audiobooks. Uh, where, where where my ethics get me? Uh, like I can't go any further. Is if I'm going to start giving it to other people, like okay, you give me an audiobook of Evan Lamps, the the great raps of wrath. For, for no, Evan Lamp has an actual ebook that is available. Let's let's go with that one. What's your uh your and it's a paper book? Is it an ebook as well? Evan. Oh, Evan. What what's the what, name oh, of your book? Your Philip oh, K. Dick the, book. The, the work. Oh, the Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick in the world we live in. Yes. Okay. Okay. Suppose you give me an audio book of that. I wish it existed. Can we make an audio book out of your your uh, ebook or paper book, Evan? I have to go back and, and update it. It's, okay, you update it, and then I'm going to yeah. find a narrator, okay? All right. Because I want to listen yeah, to it. I, I never, I didn't do that for money. I know, but but it, it is yours, and I need your permission to get an audiobook made, and um, I also probably need to find a narrator who's willing to do it. But <laughs> it, the thing is, is I want to read that book, but I don't want to actually sit down in a chair and read it. I want to listen to it. So well, yeah. you 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 are the audiobook man, just yeah. after all. SSF audio. Is one not I know SSF one person. Free. I think he probably wrote to you. Uh, he heard you on the podcast and uh, downloaded or uh, not downloaded, uh, bought your book from Amazon because that's I think the only place to get it. Oh okay, yeah, I know. I, I, you write to me occasionally. Yeah, he writes to me a lot. Mike is oh. his name. Um, yeah. Uh, I I think. Th- you know that's a good example. So let's let's take that example okay, of so this let's, Evans book, okay. uh, Philip K. Dick in the world we live in. Okay, so okay, so you give me an audio book of this, which doesn't exist yet, but I suppose it does for review for the podcast. I listen to it nice and slowly. This is a great book. Now, if now, okay, so I'm fine with that because okay, I'm going to talk about this on the podcast. I'm going to review it in in essence. But now, if I if I went ahead, you gave me this, and I say gave it to Fred Kish or Chris Govesque or David Annandale or any or put it up on a tour and say that's where I would say, okay, I'm being a pirate. I'm doing something wrong Aha, here. The wrongness. Now, Evan, how do you feel that's about what, that's all that? What, that's my wrongness. How do you oh, feel, feel about how do you feel about having your audiobooks passed around? I don't know, it's weird because I've been I've been just distributing the same ideas on the on the podcast. Yeah. So so would you be would you think Paul did something wrong? Yeah, I, I don't think it's actually that's great. <laughs> See, I don't know, I you're actually hurting point. you're hurt you're hurting Evan by not following your better instinct, Paul. Well, I, I think well, I, I still have a couple of critiques here. Paul. One is, yeah, I still don't see how libraries aren't pirates. In this, they are. In this to I've had authors they tell me they're pirates, and you shouldn't they were doing, borrow from the library. So, so as long as I buy the CD first, I can send it off to the torrent site. Well, the, well, the library the, bought the book, so that's that's why. Yeah, I so I buy the CD and I give it to Pirate Bay. Right, but then, but. but you give it to Pirate Bay, and then hundreds of people are hopefully are hopefully yeah. So hope a library buys a book, don't they? Hope hundreds of people will read it. Well, well, not in the U.S. By knowing like Canada and England and other places, authors get money for those library rentals. Yes, yeah, and weird. the U.S. The, the 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 U.S. doesn't do that. So it's a YouTube model. 
Yeah. Well, I think go their way. Well, okay, the other thing is I just think we, we're in this era where it's this technology, it's the type of media we have. I, I don't see how you put the genie back in the bottle. And, you know, the recording industry had to figure out how to make money off of YouTube. You know, and I, maybe the same, something like that has to happen with other careers. It's funny, you know, uh, what's his name? I, I'm not a music guy, but uh, my understanding is Justin Bieber was a YouTube star. Yeah, that's what Wit seems to think, too. He, he started off as a kid who was singing in his bathroom or his bedroom or whatever, and then he became a mainstream guy. You know, uh, he has a recording contract or whatever with one of the studios. I, I just don't know that much about music. But uh, long story short, um, most my understanding is most musicians actually make all their money not from their recording contract because most musicians don't have their own uh, studio, right? Like the Beatles did. Um, but rather, they make it from touring. And they sell merch, right? Merchandise. And those things are like totems. Kind of like the way, Paul, you you, you say, you know, you, you'll buy a Paul Anderson audiobook and not listen to it. Um, because you want to contribute to I do, I do listen to it. I do listen to it. No, no, but like you said, after. Well, well, yeah, well, well, yes, yes, well, yeah. No, well, I, I may re-listen to it at some point if you I do may, listen to the book. The point is, is you're, you're, you're. It's a totemic purchase, right? It's, it's to acknowledge that this artist has done great work. And the thing is, is I want people to get paid, right? I want people to be able to make a living from doing great work. So do I. I'd be great. Um, So what I think is so amazing is just the number of people who are doing Patreons now. Um, Evan, you don't have a Patreon yet, do you? I don't have any listeners. (laughs) Well, you're on YouTube, which doesn't help. And the other the other reason you don't have that many listeners is whenever you tweet, I have to click on your tweet and see what it's about because it doesn't say. So we got to find a way to make that a little more because uh, that's a way of advertising. People want to hear Philip K. Dick stuff, and you got a ton of it, but they they don't see it, and and that's why um, I want to help you. I want to help you uh, streamline your okay. your awesomeness. And maybe get you a Patreon. Notice I don't want to have a Patreon, but let's let's get yeah, back. But you want to, other people to get a Patreon uh, that's, I, I, I because I want to give them money. Basically, is what I want to do, right? Um, so Mr. Jim Moon has one. He 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 said it went up recently. I I said, well, I have been tweeting about your show a lot, and he says thank you. <laughs> so it went up recently. Um, Luke Burridge just started one, which is very surprising. Um, but it's not for his science fiction book review podcast. It's for a, uh, juggling videos that he's doing on YouTube. Well, he's juggling around the bloody world, so yeah. Uh, his his international juggler is – I show it to my students all the time. Uh, his 2009 international juggler where he just shows himself juggling all over the world, you know, and these amazing yeah. locations. He he needs to do a, an update on that. I, he, he did one update, but the song wasn't as good. He does his own music for it as well. But um, I think he's still recording those. So eventually we're going to get a mayor, maybe a higher res uh, version with um, even more locations. It's just amazing video to watch because 
very few people have that lifestyle that they can travel all over the world and see these amazing locations. Uh, like, there's very few countries you haven't been to. I, I, I know. I, I, I envy Luke, Luke a lot. You, you have to start working on your juggling skills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's not just uh, this model. Yeah. This model of the Patreon, right? So people consume the media freely, and then they donate. Right. right. And, or, and if or, they or donate... Video games, video games are kind of like this already. Like, how many people play, I don't know, Skyrim or Fallout or something? Millions and millions. We actually pay for the game. What percentage of people actually pay for the game? Uh, it's a good question. I, I, I pay for almost all my games now, and the reason is um, it's just really convenient. Um, and that's transaction costs again, right? Origin, the ones that do all the EA games, it's it's pretty good. It works it re- works really solidly. Um, my uh, other one, Steam, I, I I I buy all the games that I play on Steam because it even though it's got DRM, it just really makes things smooth. And most games are sort of transitioned to the um, multiplayer model, which I'm not 100 percent a fan of, but in multiplayer, it's harder Says to get. Says the PUBG fan. That's right. No, well, yeah, but yeah, but like, so for example, uh, Fallout, the latest Fallout game is supposed to be multiplayer, which is stupid because that that's a story game, right? Um, but I, I just bought um, uh, Battlefield One because I want to play the story mode, not the multiplayer, right? I like the World War One setting. I wanted to see you know beautiful renderings of trenches and that's what i got right so um there are uh people who who pirate games for sure um but they tend to be single player games um and it's a lot of it has to do with money when i was a kid i had no money i couldn't afford to buy uh most of the games i wanted nor did i even have a car to drive to those stores what i did have was two floppy disk drives and a friend with a box full of computer games and when you had to do the anti-copy protection measures like have a manual you'd photocopy the manual if you had access to one of those or you'd write it all down on a grid you know like it's all about the cost and and if you think of how low the cost is now for things like uh netflix right ten dollars a month or so for accounts and how much television more television than you could ever watch Yep. So where's the downside, right? The downside is, well, guess what? When they start deleting things from the Netflix account, which I'm not sure they've done yet, but I'm thinking they might very well soon. What with the cancellation of the two Marvel shows? Yeah. Who has copies of it and where can you get them? I'll tell you. Or they just rotate stuff. Sorry? In and out. It just rotates up in and out of Netflix. No, no, I'm talking their original stuff. No, I, I, oh, I the original stuff. I'm okay. not. Okay. I, I'm not talking about their, um, you know, their licensing of movies. I'm talking about their their branded stuff, because that stuff gets pulled down. Where can you get it? It's gone. You nobody ever had a digital copy. Right? Is there a DVD version of Marvel's Netflix shows? Um, streaming stuff, I think. There must be torrents. There are torrents, absolutely. 100% there are torrents. I've seen them. But what there aren't is DVDs, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Like Marco Polo, I I bought the season one on DVD, 
but season two is not on DVD and the show's canceled. I would like a season two DVD just in case, yeah, they decide to take it off and I won't be able to watch it, rewatch it anymore. But then when your DVD player stops working, because none of my new computers have DVD players or CD players in them. Well, yeah, that, that, you, that, that, you're that, that, basically uh, going to have to turn to torrents to. Uh, that's <laughs> the thing. It's all about preservation. It's all about keeping the cultural history and and not getting, you know, yourself photoshopped out of it. With Evan, you're talking about your songs that have uh, been revised. Hmm. I, I, I had no idea that was happening with pop, pop songs, but it makes sense. Well, this only example I know is a Taylor Swift one, but I somehow that happened with Woody Guthrie with this one, Deerland. I don't know the story behind it, but when you just when you look at the lyrics on Wikipedia, it has these verses. I couldn't find a version. Wow! And actually, one showed up on on YouTube that had those verses. And this is the interesting. That's the version that uh, Seeger used at the Obama inauguration. Ah, more lefty version. So ah. they got kind of more popular in 2001. You, you guys know about uh, 2008. You guys know about Aaron Schwartz. This this is the the kid who invented RSS. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, his big project uh, right before he got arrested and threatened and, and suicided basically was um, to liberate all the public domain materials that were behind a paywall. Um, he had a server. Uh, our computer in a closet of MIT, I think it was, and he was downloading all of the law library of uh, behind. I think maybe it was JSTOR. You know, yeah, and you know was. about JSTOR, right? JSTOR, JSTOR is yeah. the nightmare I never dealt with in university. I was always given all these references to go to JSTOR and search on JSTOR, and like, fuck that. You have to have a special well, terminal and an account number and all that shit. I just want this stuff so I can do my homework. Transaction costs, again. Now, the, the, the Schwartz thing, it's, it's, it seems to me a much simpler case because most there's no research done anywhere by professors. That's not suddenly public-funded, whether right. it's... Even in a private university, you have student loans funding the students and supporting the faculty. So no research is being done without federal funding. So that stuff should all be public domain. It should be, and it is. It is public domain. It's just not public domain in the uh, sense that it's available. So this is is actually a really interesting case. So, um, Paul, you know, that uh, you were saying it would be wrong to do, uh, you know, to pass it on to somebody, right? And I was thinking, like, well, I, 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 I had, I was sending Wayne June um, two items because uh, mm-hmm. he, he lost uh, one was the uh, Algernon Blackwood's The Willows, which he he recorded and gave away for free, um, but then lost his recording up due to a computer crash. Um, yeah. And he was saying, if you don't have it, um, uh, I'll 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 um, write to some of the email addresses of the people who bought it from me, and I'll hope that they will share it back with me, which is, I think, hilarious. Um, and then uh, and then the other one was The House on the Borderlands, which is his amazing narration of of the William Hope Hodgson novel. And uh-huh. um, uh, while I was searching for that and hoping to find it on one of these old hard drives, which I eventually did, um, I said, well, I could sell it to you, Wayne. 
<laughs> like if if a if an artist doesn't have access to their own material, they don't really own it, right? But once it's in their hands, they can do what they want with it. It's all about it's all about control and power, and and knowledge. I mean, this kind of sounds stupid, but knowledge is power. Information is power. And trying to maximize that information to everyone. It's not wrong for me to give Wayne a pirated copy of his own thing. And not because I, I, you know, have a special workaround. It's just not wrong in, in general. Right? Is it good that artists get paid? Absolutely. So that they can support their family. And, you know, it's also good that they have health care. Right? <laughs> These are good things. It's not, you know, the way you get your health care that's important. It's just health care is good. Information. Yeah, wouldn't socialism solve all this problem? Say say that again. Wouldn't socialism just solve all this? We wouldn't have to talk about this anymore. Well, a lot of people don't like that word. They think it's scary. Well, I think because who? Oscar Wilde wrote this book, you know, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. But his argument for socialism was largely cultural. He said. If we have socialism, I don't have to worry about my illegitimate children. I don't have to worry about my family. I don't have to worry about poor people living in the gutter near my house. I'm free to just be a totally liberated artist. That's scary to a lot of people, all those things you just yeah. said, right? And because, this, because socialism takes care of all these people, right? It's not a personal burden. So he gives charity in a way. A lot of it's this, this kind of this burden, this moral burden we feel throughout life to care for the poor, to make sure everyone is justly compensated for their labor. Socialism gets rid of all that. Yes. And it's, for him, it's a very liberatory thing as an artist, right? Because all, all the morality that kind of bogs down art would be gone. In his view. An, econ an economist would say it's all transaction costs. Right. So the fact yeah. that uh, and literally that's what's going on in the American healthcare system. Right. Is the reason it's more expensive is not because, uh, you know, your doctor just is way more incompetent. It has nothing to do with that. It's transaction costs. There's a whole group in the middle between you and your doctor called the insurance companies. Yeah. And they are sucking off profits um, from people. And because of that, there's a gap in the market uh, at the bottom where people can't afford it. Uh, just mm -hmm. go without, just like when you can't afford a book uh, and there's no library, which apparently is a thing now where they just close libraries. Uh, there is no access to the stuff that you want. So uh, bootlegging, right? The alcohol bootlegging industry is not analogous with our modern era, but it is because of uh, it's an actual physical object that can be consumed. But when you've got a digital copy of something, it absolutely cannot be consumed. It can be played, it can be modified, it can be copied infinitely at almost no cost. So we're in a we are in a post scarcity situation, and in post scarcity, the thing that's going to work is a Patreon style model, or just having patrons yeah. in general, right? Because people love to be contributors to like. This is what kings did, right? Back in the old days, they'd find the latest, uh, greatest engineer and say, I want you to sh make some shit so I look good. I make my feel myself yeah, all those look good. So, so those, are, those are like the cat mistresses of the state, right? Right. The uh, Michelangelo's and the Donatello's and all those guys are, you know, and or the, or the church, right? The church with the big yeah, money bags. Making all this art 
for the common good and to show off the riches of the patron. I, I don't know about the common good. I was I just recently watched that BBC's PBS series Civilizations, and they they go into the whole birth of the Renaissance and how art was used by by the church and by wealthy patrons and wasn't for the common good. It was mainly basically to show 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 off power power and wealth of those institutions of but those, those people wasn't good too. yeah but the art wouldn't have been created right. otherwise that, that, right. they're, they're good right. too just like that propaganda film that i uploaded that nobody cares about right Wait, it, what's the name of that propaganda it's film called again, Jesse? harmony uh, it's it, it, it's it's korean for grandmother Har- harmony is is but it's spelled how harmony with an l but it's that's because they have an rl thing <laughs> um but harmony is is how it's it should it's normally pronounced. It's H A L M A N I, I think. Oh, there. Well, I listened to the complete works of of Mozart, right? I have this big box, mm-hmm. 160, 70 CDs, right? A whole lot of it is like chamber music, mm-hmm. which he was obviously writing because the, the the emperor, whatever, said, "I'm having a party. We need some music." Right. Right. And a lot of it's religious music, right? And these operas were court operas. But none of that would, it's good stuff. None of it would have existed if he wasn't, you know, on the dole of the king of Austria or whatever. You know, he was very displaced, of course. But um, was it Salzburg for a long time? It's in the 19th century that the artists have to start to cater to popular tastes and the taste of the bourgeoisie. And, you know, that's a, that's a different model that emerged more based well, on concert. Well, well again, again, that depends on the place because I'm going back to this TV show. TV show, it turns out that that sort of common use, that that common taste was actually more common in Japan in the in the 18th and 19th century because they would make these Yukio e-prints of all sorts of things and would basically art for the masses and the, and th- that in turn inspired artists in Europe when they got a hold of them like Monet to uh to experiment with form with the ideas of of popular art so we actually imported that idea in some senses from from japan i think they came up with a a simpler point just that there's we we don't have mozart's work if not for this system so if it's aggrandizing the state and yeah he was catering to the taste of the elite that's true but we need to know that anyways even even if even if it's like it's just that wouldn't exist without the patrons but more importantly now everybody gets to be a king, right? Even me, who has yeah. one of the lowest incomes of anybody you'll ever meet. Seriously, I have a really low income. The re- <laughs> I'm like, I'm poorer than everybody. Uh, even I can contribute to the arts, right? I can yeah. give money to uh, podcasts and say, you you know, you're doing... Or to Patreons, yeah. I, I can give money every month, and I feel like, you know, I'm helping. And I literally am helping, Right? And one day that artist's gonna die, and oh, so sad. Guess what? Their uh, great grandchildren aren't gonna be able to profit from the copyrights on it because nobody bothers with copyrights on podcasts. And those who do are making a fucking waste of time. It's wasting my time. You're wasting their own time. They're wasting everybody's time, right? It's it's ridiculous. There's you know. That's not the model that we're we're in now. Not with infinitely copyable. What we would do in the case of uh, Eli Whitney today 
is he would get a Patreon. (laughs) People would start contributing to the Eli Whitney engineering fund. Uh, I I think Whitney's a bad example because that's in, that's invention, not, uh, they're not that different. They're not that different. There are differences, but, um, I know a lot about the steam donkey. I don't know that much about the cotton gin, but the way that one worked was pretty much the exact same way. People started, uh, making improvements and, and the whole trademark and, um, patent system, but mostly the patent system, not the trademark system, um, comes out of a desire to maximize, sort of put a turbocharger on invention, right? That's why there's a limited, uh, uh, patents is one of the few things that hasn't been radically changed um, to extended, right? Patents are still relatively short, uh, either 14 or 28 years, I can't remember now. Uh, the original in the United States was 14 years. The United States used to be the most free copyright uh, state in the world because there was no king issuing a uh, royal monopoly to print playing right. cards. Anybody could do it. And right. And, right. So, I remember Dickens being screaming. Oh, yes. Dickens, Dickens screaming about, about his losses. Yes. Yep. And, and so, uh, I mean, even William Hope Hodgson was producing – works to be published in, you know, an edition of 100 books in the United States so he could secure an American copyright. This is 100 years, just over 100 years ago. Now, the United States has a very restrictive copyright, but that that change over time, has it, has it benefited? It's definitely benefiting the great-grandchildren of Robert E. Howard. Oh, wait, he doesn't have any. It's definitely benefiting, right? That, that's the... It's... It, the estates thing, you know, the rent-seeking behavior, that is not in line with good human policy. Not in line with socialism either. But, what is the Robert E. Howard copyrights? Uh, well, almost all of them are. Uh, in the states, there's almost n- nothing that is wholly under copyright. There's a few things that were published in the 70s. Um, and... There is a company called Robert E. Howard Holdings that claims copyright over some things, and they are the rights were purchased from like a cousin, from an aunt, or something. And so there is a company out there that claims copyright, but mostly what they do now is trademark, right? So they mm-hmm. say Conan the Barbarian trademark, right? <laughs> Red Sonia, and there's still Red Sonia comics, even though there was only one Red Sonia story, and it's not even mm. the same character. So they do it by trademarks now. They find their way. It's so uh, very famously in the comics industry right now, they're reviving Marvel's reviving Conan in 2019. Uh, what I've seen yeah, so far, that. what I've seen so far is not making me happy because it doesn't look like it's connected to this the original stories very much and it also doesn't look like it's connected to the original run on uh it's a, it, so, it's, so it's a hard reboot with whole new stuff <sighs> yes uh, and so they kind of, kind, of, kind of like that recent movie which was like what yeah <laughs> the exactly. Jason Momoa uh, one, so which is which that's is fine is, as a non-conan movie but it's not really a conan movie yeah in my and, and uh, you know I want to talk like if if we're talking about the goods of piracy. Did you know that there are missing uh, Philip K. Dick stories from his youth that just went missing, and we nobody has a copy of. 
I, no, yeah, one, there, yeah. There was one that was published in a in a magazine. We don't know which issue. I've been looking for this story for a long time because it doesn't say it was published in one of Rogues. That's like a competitor to Playboy. We don't know what issue it was published in. Maybe it never was published, but it's supposed to be 1963. It could be public domain. I can't tell because I can't find the original publication. Um, so there are, if there was better methods of copying back then and more free copying, as in people were able to do it, we would have those stories. They would be preserved. And that would so, be, we would be better off as human beings with those stories. I think. There's something I, I, maybe this connects to Pan, maybe it connects to like the old pirates too. Because one thing you can see this in Lesson. I, I mean, I have my critiques of Lesson. I think he's in a conceptual bubble. But uh, who, who uh, critiques who? Book, the invisible hook. Oh, um, yeah, okay, yep. Yeah. Right. But both him and Redeker agree that there's this kind of bottom up order that emerges in pirates based on this kind of collectivity of their their labor. Now, Lesson insists on like the self-interest stuff, which I don't think you need. And that's why I think he's in a bit of a conceptual bubble. But both agree there's kind of this collective reality on the pirate ship, right? Leeson is the author of the Invisible Book, the Hidden Economics of Pirates. And, of course, when you read these other books, you see that certainly piracy is a collective act now. Right? It's not just one person smuggling stuff. It's it's all the users who consume this. It's all the people who, who leak stuff. It's all the people managing torrents, right? And they're usually just like working class people working out of their basement. Yep, collectors. Invention and now when we move into invention and art, I mean invention nowadays at least. I mean it's not some guy usually tinkering in his basement making something from scratch, right? You're building off the collective knowledge of humanity. Exactly. The minute you start there, and you know, you just you just you just remix something, and you can make a patent out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like now in a lab, right, you add a gene to some seed and to make it pest resistance, and you patent it. And, and I don't know. I really question the ethics of this, and, and maybe again, this is why we maybe need socialism is to think about this in new ways. Like science is a collective act, and always has been. Science is what you're you're breaking up. Collective about. act. It's uh, collective. Yes, it's, absolutely. Yeah. 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 In fact, like, um, the whole royal society, science, right? Right. That's their whole. Yeah. That that was their whole shtick. The royal society, the guys who invented Western science. Their whole thing is: you come to us, you show us what your thing is, you show us how you did it, we'll copy it, and if it works, then it's real. Right. That's the. That's what made it not alchemy anymore. Where everybody's copying and not trading and hiding their 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 discoveries from each other. But but even 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 then, right there at the beginning beginning there were clashes between members of the Royal Society. Got into scraps with Leibniz over calculus. So even at the beginning, even at the even at that golden beginning, it wasn't so golden because there were still well, conflicts is, over is, uh, math. Is not science though. It's it is it is invention. <laughs> well, it absolutely think- is invention, but it's not science. Right. I th- I think there are some people who would disagree with you about that, but but yeah. So, but but oh, okay, okay. So, so, so like um, so like between ha- Halley and Newton, there were conflicts over over describing gravitation. Yes, and absolutely. So, so 
so I'm not I'm not sure that that early model was 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 as as golden as you as oh, people might the, think. The, that's that's science in action, right? Two guys fighting about who's right and whose system is better. That's what the, that's you know you've got mm-hmm. two drugs and both of them are claimed to do a job, and one of them uh, uses this chemical formula and the other uses that chemical formula and eventually we find out who who wins. And that I mean, we're all better off for, for having those drugs. Neither Newton or Leibniz are there if not for like Euclid. And then all these other people that came before them. Yep. Yeah. They're just they're just remixing stuff and adding. I, you know, Hume even has this idea of knowledge, right? That this is Hume's David Hume's theory of knowledge is that we basically can only remix and reorganize things we already know. I don't know if we want to go that far. Yeah, no, uh, no, I, no. I, I go with the whole standing on the shores of giants idea. Okay. That but I guess my question then is: To what degree do artists? Does the same thing apply to artists? Does Anderson Poole stand on the shoulders of giants as well? <laughs> I think he actually uses that phrase in one of his books. Um, yes, um, everything so, is a remix. Well, is also a uh, movie, I believe. Um, about remix culture and and how you know hip hop uh, takes little snippets from albums and puts it together with a new beat and you know you have a it is re- remixing absolutely and there are this new discoveries to be found in science but those are found in the wrinkles of observed phenomena right so there's something yeah. out there we can't figure it out hmm, let's look at it well you know what there's this thing from biology that they they talk about all the time in biology. Let's fi- let's bring that over here and see what and and that's how we get a kind of new and better tools to understand what the hell's going on. First, science does work a lot in the way that literature does, in that people are in dialogue, right? The difference is um, one is art and one is science, but the the remixing is happening in both. Uh, I, I, I've been, we've gone, been going through all the uh, Heinlein books lately, and Heinlein leads back to Jerome K. Jerome and, and Richard Kipling, right? Mm-hmm. And they are building on uh, – there's – Richard Kipling's not getting his stuff out of nowhere either. This is not breathed to him by a god. It's – it's uh, he's looking at his own culture, his own literature, and the literature and culture of other people. Uh, other peoples and that is all brought to us it is building on the shoulder of giants 100 percent. so oh, yeah so then it, it's kind of like with the schwartz case with uh jstor you know the, the argument there is this is all public domain kind of on a, on a mor- morally because we all pay into it we all contribute to it in a way through our taxes. I mean, it's clear to see there, but I think broader in invention and even in culture, music, whatever, it's it's all collective. So this idea of the individual copyright or patent, it, it seems really, it, I just draw the moral case for it, I guess. There, I, I, if, if, if you could argue like a value-added tax kind of thing that goes to the creator, if we could determine that, like, well, we, we actually have that. We, we have um, in Canada when when Americans in the 90s were putting a hell of a lot of pressure on Canada to change its copyright laws, which eventually they just did, by the way, really, really badly. To uh, uh, Our laws are coming into 
confirmation with the U.S. thanks to the NAFTA shit. Um, Sorry, Jesse. Re- renegotiation there. Yeah. Um, so now instead of 50 years after death, it's 70 for us now, just like for you. That means your great-great-grandpa wrote something as a kid, um, and now you get to reap the rewards of that. Or no, really, probably not. Not unless your great-great-grandpa was Richard Kipling, right? Or a Richard Kipling type. <laughs> it's it's not good. There is a YouTube video, by the way, that um, is very interesting, um, and it's funded by uh, Patreon. Um, called <laughs> Everything is a Remix. And it takes snippets of different things and shows how they're all connected in the way that James Burke show. Uh, uh, Connections, connected, yeah. Right? Where he says this influenced this and this influences. It, it, it feels like that's the first show about uh, somebody who's um, got attention deficit disorder, you know? Because he's just so fast <laughs> in switching between these things and how he can show the connection between a Concorde jet and a cotton gin, right? And and he, he has made those connections and the connections are real, but it's hard to see the connections unless you slow down and you say, aha, and you do your own research. He's, he's doing it for television, but everything is a remix, takes that little thing and it, it shows how, you know, things like Avatar, right? A movie by... James Cameron is actually uh, a Paul Anderson story, and not this. Not that this video does that, but um, it, it shows it's a Paul Anderson story, and it's also uh, uh, a couple other things, right? Uh, how about yep. um, the Terminator, right? That's a half, half, uh, admittedly uh, from a Harlan Ellison story, right, and uh, partly from a dream he had, and Literally everything in one, yeah, at, or Alien. Uh, the first Alien movie is. Uh, uh, what's his name? A.E. Van Vaught, right? There's nothing new under the sun. There's just stuff you don't know about and that they know mm-hmm. about. And and if he had, if the guy who wrote uh, Alien, that's uh, Dan O'Bannon, I think, um, had to try and track down the A.E. Van Vaught estate and license uh, this thing, which he didn't have to do because it's it's different enough, it would never have happened. So the the m- more restrictive you are with the control of information, the less stuff gets produced. It's just it's like um it's like sex. If nobody's allowed to have sex, there's not very many babies. When everybody's allowed to have a sex, you get a population of six billion, seven billion, whatever it is now. And some of those people are good. Eight billion, yeah. Something like that. Uh, maybe maybe we got to slow down on the people and more on the more on the uh, stories. I don't know. Yeah, but more people be more stories, just inevitably, right? Probably, yeah. That's that critique of Malthus, right? That people aren't just consumers. No, they're, they're not. They're and that's why the word right? consumer. That's what the, the uh, what the copyright industry. You know, the people who claim trademark and, and copyright and even patents. Uh, basically rent seeking right you you have mm-hmm. you own shit you have a monopoly on it you say i want my money give me my money um that's what they always call the people like you and me consumers right but paul although you read a lot of books i don't say you actually consume them right no they're done I, I, they're sitting I, I, on the I, shelf when you you you're done with them right i, I might re i might reread them i might reference them again you might give it to a friend 
I and if right, you don't, your estate sure. might, right? Yeah, but I I, I want to make I want to make a quote from the game Alpha Centauri, which is in the spirit of what you were just saying. You've mm-hmm. played Alpha Centauri, haven't you? Jesse? I didn't finish it because I I like the the civilization right. setting, not the future setting. I, 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 I think it's great. I think the remake was that they tried to do recently was bollocks. But here it goes. As the Americans learned so painfully in Earth's final century, free flow of information is the only defense against tyranny. Mm. Only safeguard against tyranny. The once chained people who leaders at last lose their grip on information flow will soon burst with freedom and vitality. But the free nation, gradually constricting its grip on public discourse, has begun its rapid slide into despotism. Beware of he who would deny you access to information, for in his heart he dreams yourself your master. Yes, I agree. Uh, I mean, this is yeah. this is why I think you know Alex Jones should not be pulled down from anything. He's not committing crimes that don't put him in jail. Then his talking is not a crime, and he shouldn't be pulled down from anything. Do I watch Alex Jones? No, I don't. Do I think Alex Jones is a good person? I think he's probably not. It doesn't matter. Once you start locking down what people can say that isn't, you know, uh, stab him with this knife, sir, <laughs> then <laughs> then you're on the path to tyranny. Um, I want to I want to I know I've talked about it before on the um, podcast, but I just think it's so important. This is the uh, this is the killer nail in the coffin for me of why. You cannot believe that piracy is always a bad thing. Um, so this is uh, from the TolkienLibrary.com website, and it talks about the pirate editions of The Lord of the Rings. And here's what it says. So this is from, obviously, some sort of official website, right? Uh, the infamous Ace Books pirated edition, quote-unquote quote, quote around it, from 1965, the opening salvo of the War over Middle Earth, quote unquote. A very nice, near fine match set of this notorious edition. This is the only paperback, quote unquote, Lord of the Rings to be printed based on later printings of the first edition. All others were based on revised editions. Houghton Mifflin seemed to have in have been in technical violation of the law, having imported too many copies printed by Allen and Unwin. Ace Books took notice of the sales and oversee productions of the books, which were marked printed in Great Britain, determined that the Lord of the Rings had fallen into uh, determined that the Lord of the Rings had fallen into the public domain in the United States, Ace launched their own edition in spring 1965. Hammond Anderson, page 104. Uh, that's our citation, I guess. So to secure the American copyright, Tolkien was asked to submit new material to create a new edition and so secure copyright beyond question. Tolkien conducted a personal campaign against Ace Books in letters to his American fans. The war over Middle-earth was fought in the popular press with publicity, contributing to its increasing sales and popularity. Within a year, Ace gave in to public pressure. They agreed to print, they agreed to print no more copies and negotiated royalties to be paid to Tolkien. This set of books was yellowed pages uh, from highly acidic paper, but light-creasing so they're trying to sell this book, right? this set. Oh. The important part here that's left out is that Tolkien uh, wouldn't allow paperback editions of his book because he associated paperbacks with cheap, shitty books. Yep. And 
this paperback edition forced him to th- rethink about this, considering how well they were selling. The reason Tolkien became popular, not when it came out in the 40s, but in the 60s when my parents were reading it, and the reason I even so, know about I mean, the Lord yeah. of the Rings is because my father had a copy of The Hobbit in paperback on a shelf that I said, I want you to read this story to me, Daddy. The reason I love and everyone loves The Lord of the Rings is not because Tolkien was such a genius. It's because Tolkien was such a genius and his stuff was made available in a consumer friendly product, right? Yeah. Not something that you, the argument can be made that you could go to the library and get out the hardcover volume one of The Lord of the Rings and lug it around on the bus and that is retarded. It's just stupid. It doesn't make any sense because people want to read books. And if you've got a paperback, you can carry it anywhere. That's what they're for. I've got a U.S. Um, somewhere around here. A service, a service edition. That's the ones that they printed for servicemen overseas fighting in World War II. They would take they would go to publishers and say hey uh the servicemen overseas need stuff to read you got any stuff you're willing to give to us for free for printing that is you get no commission you get no sales and they absolutely ponied up including arkham house put out a love lovecraft one <laughs> so you, you can imagine these guys in the trenches of world war ii sitting in the arden waiting for the uh battle of the bulge to begin and in Reading their front, Lovecraft. front pocket that perfectly fits, it was literally designed to fit in a fatigue's front pocket. They're reading H.P. Lovecraft and going, holy shit, this stuff's amazing. And this is why Lovecraft is the name he is today. It's a slow buildup. He was huge at the time, and then he died, and there was this slow buildup. And people getting it into the hands and the pockets of people is what makes something culturally relevant. Because no matter how much I think something's great, if I if I can't get it into other people's hands, they will not find it so. They just won't. That's why piracy is always a good thing, I think. There are cases where somebody's going to lose money. I think that's bad. I think we need to try and ameliorate this. But your health care shouldn't be dependent upon my having bought a paperback from a new bookstore and you hoping that the publisher gives you enough revenue uh, from that single sale. There are many schemes to try and help artists. Uh, One is, you know, in the UK, they say this book is not available to sale uh, on the secondary market, right? You open the book and it says you can't sell this book in a used bookstore. Get real, right? Now, they have managed to do this with audible try and you you apparently i hear dan Cullen tell me all the time audible uh has the greatest catalogs you get to buy these books and you own them forever yeah until audible says you don't or audible's format is gone or the player doesn't work anymore it's all locked under drm you don't own any of your audible audible audiobooks you have access to them you have a license to them and that license is utterly revocable so until we, I think, accept that fact, we're, we're not ever going to agree that piracy is 
a good or a bad thing. It just, that is the dividing line, whether you have access to it or not, I think. I I think that's a good way to end your thesis. Do you have any final words, Evan? Oh, I think I said mostly what I wanted to say. We didn't really talk about traditional pirates. Let's 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 Caribbean. talk about a, traditional pirates. I, I I think if I was in the navy, I would totally want to become a pirate because navies were really mean. First, they impress you. <laughs> right? They they literally get you drunk, force some money into your hand, abduct you, put you on a ship, um, where you're subject to basically hazing. Um, abuse, um, rape, all sorts of horrible shit, and you, your pay is really bad, right? Military was pretty bad. It's bad enough in all the uh, the books you you've been going through by um, uh, author Melville. Oh, Melville. Yeah. Melville yeah. talks about you know going to sea. That's the story on um, even in William Hope Hodgson, right? The reason he got into bodybuilding is because he was a relatively small guy and people were abusing him and he, he didn't want to take it anymore. And he, what did he say when he got out of uh, the uh, merchant marine? He said, um, uh, he wrote an article saying, should your son join the merchant marine? And he's like, hell no. <laughs> right? And this is a guy who traveled all over the world in the Navy or the merchant marine anyways. Um, and he, he was, obviously a brilliant guy absolutely the 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 reason there are so many mutinies and people jumping ship and being marooned and all that stuff the reason we have all those stories is because it was pretty hellish and the opposite of that is that i think i think that hidden economics of pirates makes a pretty good case for how democratic they were they had egalitarian in terms of uh, merit and not in terms of race, right? There were women in uh, piracy, there was blacks in piracy and they were not all run by white, rich men. I, I don't... I think his conclusions are, are essentially right. I, I just think he comes at it, the author of The Invisible Book, he comes at it by putting himself in a control bubble by saying, like, my baseline you know, ideas that these are rational actors and they're self-interested, right? And once you claim that, of course, you can claim any social behavior self-interested, right? Mm-hmm. Family is just, I want to protect myself or, you know, you know, my relationship with a girlfriend is just, you know, because I want to have the best sex and she wants to have the best sex. We're self-interested in that. Right. And that makes mm-hmm. us both happy. You can do that. I don't think that really explains human behavior in a lot of cases. I don't think the pirates are rational. They... In a sense, I think I don't think the individuals are rational, but I do think that uh, all the the things that happen in piracy of that kind of of piracy are rational, right? The 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 reason they have like it it seemed to be universal that the captain and the quartermaster were elected, right? That was not it was not exclusive to fun. Sorry. he mentions Redeker a lot in that book. Who, mm-hmm. He's the guy I came to know piracy through was this historian, Marcus Redeker, who wrote first a book called Between the Devil and Deep Blue Sea, which is about merchant seamen, and has a chapter on pirates. And then he wrote a book just on pirates called Villains of All Nations. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book with a guy named uh, Peter Meinbaugh, a great historian, called The Many-Headed Hydra. 
And so these, this is kind of where I came up piracy through. And that's, I guess it's more lefty and Leston is more coming from like a libertarian right wing. Well, yeah, it's an uh, economics book, like a, you know, that that's the, 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 the Chicago school like, influences strong everywhere. Right. Yeah. But like Redeker is not like, a, I guess he is sort of a Marxist, but he doesn't come at it with a Marxist like hammer or a club, you know, like the way Lessing does with his, Adam Smith. It's even in the title, right? The Invisible Hook. Yes. There's, of course, a pun on the invisible hand. Right. Yeah. And, but what they come to the same conclusions. That's what's interesting about this is they both agree that these became democratic and co- they're, they're kind of cooperative and they create new social forms and that, you know, there's kind of this bottom-up order. And I think that's where the common ground between these two points of view is, is that they're both models of bottom-up order. Both interpretations lead you to seeing pirates as bottom-up order. Which, I don't know to what degree we can apply that to modern piracy. We absolutely can apply it to music piracy, right? That's that's where, you know, those bootleggers, people going to concerts and recording, that's not top-down. That's fans, and then fans getting into, into, you know, the whole, I gotta have everything, the collector, I mean, it's mostly men, right? Collectors, obsessive collecting is mostly a male thing. Um, not that all men do it, and not that all women don't, but it's just that's sort of a thing. We we get into this yeah. massive like I gotta have every one, right? It's just how gotta we catch are. Catch them all. And that's that 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 is coming from deep inside of our own psyches, and and that's where the rational part comes in. Now, obviously, we're motivated by revenge. I mean, that's the name of some of the ships, right? Um, we gotta hit them where it hurts, and that's how I feel. Every time I, every time I liberated a new Philip K. Dick public domain story, I felt fuck you, estate, and that's literally how I yeah. felt because they had they had done copy fraud. They claimed things were under public uh, that were under copyright that absolutely were not. They literally have like fraud, whole sheets of it. And somebody, I don't even know who, somebody actually, not just the digital, like the stuff that's on the copyright.gov website. Somebody leaked me photocopies of the handwritten versions, right? The ones that were actually submitted. I put it, put those up and I was like, look at this. This is goddamn fraud, right? It, it felt so good to bring that truth out and so is that rational i don't know but i, I love that, philip that, k dick passionate. stories i does want Lester people talk to the read life them. expectancy of these these pirates redeker does in his book on pirates it's like two years if you became a pirate you're dead in two years but you um, lived so right i mean uh, the, the that's a, you were free that's the what was it a mental calculation to say well you know I can be a slave for 10 years in the merchant marine or the Navy, or I can be two years free as a pirate. Do they think about it in this, this way? That, that's, that's a good question. I, I mean, I don't like historic, like he, he says right away in the book, like I'm not a historian, please forgive me historians. But the whole book is kind of this projection of a capitalist. Yeah. It's a lens. Uh, it's a lens. Um, looking at the it. pirates. Yes. Conclusions are very similar to what the lefties who have written about pirates say. Which I find interesting. I mean, when people ask, like, what's anarchism? People ask me, it's like bottom up order. That's the normal definition of anarchism. That 
potential here, which is exactly what Les and Lesson was saying about the pirates. Mm-hmm. The border. Yeah, but and they were essentially anarchists, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's a, that's there's nobody in charge until we vote for somebody in charge, and he's only in charge during the battle. He's not in charge of where we're going. He's not in charge and of right down their coat, right? So you, you have a revolution against your master, and you sit down as a crew, write down the laws that you'll follow by. This is decades before the Constitution was written. Yes, and, and there's a lot of parallels. I, I think that. Yeah. I mean, they, they, the United States is a rebel nation, right? Uh, a pirate nation? In, in, there's, a, that's, uh, there's a whole book written by Fred uh, Godsmark, uh, not Fred Godsmark, uh, Fred Heimbaugh, um, that he sent me a copy of, hoping to get a uh, uh, positive review. I liked it, but um, I, I don't really read ebooks, so I, I, read, I read it very slowly, and by the time I got to the finish, I guess... Um, I don't think he got an audiobook out. I, I'm really an audio guy, you know. But, we know uh, that we, it, it is about. Yes, we know. It's a history of. Americans were counterfeiters, too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But it's a history of uh, the United States as a pirate nation. Um, Smugglers and. Yeah. yeah. I, point taken. Yep. Poe, uh, po, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, one of the yeah. very few people of his era who's trying to make a living writing short stories um not easily done one of the reasons it wasn't easily done is there was a lot of piracy in the united states of uk books so as paul you were pointing out um dickens Dickens, yes um when dickens came to the united states uh, poe uh had apparently written to him and met him and said uh I think I know the the solution you're going to go with on the end of the chap the next serialization, and uh, that the argument that Poe couldn't make a living, which is true, very easily uh, as a short story writer, was was partially because it was so easy to get books from other nations in the United States printed without uh, any any uh, restriction. So he needed a Patreon. Is what he needed, Poe, and he mostly did that by becoming the editor of magazines rather than the uh, publisher or the, sorry, the author of the stories in them. So he would write stories mostly for magazines that he was editing. Well, Dickens did that too. Yeah, he, in fact, Dickens had his own magazine called uh, Once a Week, I think, that was him and other other artist collectives. It's like. Um, he he was he was such a big star that he could re- have his own label just like Apple uh, or sorry just like um the Beatles had with their Apple label. That's what the big stars do, right? Mm-hmm. They start their Madonna, didn't she start her own? I think she did. Yeah. You become the industry. You become, you, you become yeah, you become the yeah. What, what you're what had been working for you know um robert j sawyer this is a author who i read almost all his books of years ago he started writing books that i didn't want to read anymore which like were, what um he did a bunch of series so he did the first one he did was um called the quintaglio ascension or something like that and it was it was a series of three books about uh dinosaurs uh on a moon uh that was tidally locked 
and they were away from that moon, so they didn't know they were. Or, no, they're tidally locked with a a gas a giant, gas giant? and they, okay. they they didn't know they were tidally locked. So they working out. Basically, it's a retelling of Galileo um, and Copernicus without uh, Galileo Copernicus. It's just dinosaurs, uh, little mini Tyrannosaurus Rexes. It's not like that, but I don't like series, so his second and third one I didn't read. Then he he wrote wrote a series of Wake, Watch, Wonder, um, where the internet comes alive or something. Yeah, um, I remember those. Yeah, and I didn't read the second one or the third one. Um, and then he did a bunch of techno the Neanderthal ones. Yeah, uh, the Neanderthal. I read the first one of that, right? And, and then he did a bunch of techno thrillers, one that got turned into a TV show. And they sort of fizzled out. Um, and we haven't seen anything from him in a while, right? And he's, he's one of these copyright maximalist guys, um, who he would, he didn't like that you would buy a used copy from the used bookstore. Um, and didn't like the library, you know, having copies to lend out. But now he's got a Patreon and, He's pl- he releases. I I don't read ebooks. I don't know uh, if they're any good. But uh, he releases um, old material and new material to his patrons. I don't think he, I don't think he has a free uh, anything. So I I I haven't got a taste enough to see if it's worthy of my thing. But even copyright maximalists who are committed, like Greg Bear, was committed to you know extracting value through the old system he's got he's going to extract value from his wife's father estate Paul Anderson's estate right he's going to extract it there he he had stuff pulled down out of off of Gutenberg because there was a theory that part of it was part of well, it yeah, was copyright yeah, renewed part of it was part of it wasn't the yes, first the first discussion. half was not copyright renewed but the second half was and it was published the next year and they threatened this lawsuit against Gutenberg.org, so that got pulled down. But uh, he he did the same thing. He started writing books that aren't for me, like books about the FBI called uh, Quantico. Yeah, the Quantico. I, I I didn't care for his Quantico series. Nobody either, does. So. And he's following. He's chasing after a different market than what he's he's uh, when you. When you're trying to get the bigger money, always trying to get the bigger money, you see that the big money's in Tom Clancy books, even though Tom Clancy's dead, right? He's got games, he's got Tom. The Tom Clancy name now is a rubber stamp that a corporation can put on things to say this is this is what you're gonna get. You're gonna get more of this, which is a good product, right? He made good books and good movies out of those books, but that that old system is going away. And it's a good thing because it's much more the new one's much more compatible with uh, with piracy, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how that's related to original pirates, but yeah, do we we we, we kind well, of veered right back to what we're still talking economy, about though, those original pirates. Say that again. They're still in a scarcity economy, I guess. Yes, like there's still shipments or something. I mean, there's still. A limit, I guess. Yeah, um, traditionally it's gold the- thereafter, right? Thereafter, silver and gold in the Caribbean. Um, there's, mon- uh, by the way, there's monopolies all over the, the these stories. Whenever you start looking at at what what's going on in piracy, it's monopolies, right? So, in Canada, almost all the lands that are now Canada and a lot of the United States 
were owned by a particular company that had a monopoly. It's called the Hudson's Bay Company. All waters that drained into Hudson's Bay belonged to the Hudson's Bay Company. They had exclusive rights for trading there. And then but how, was it really old, though? Of course, sorry? the Spaniards have the biannual, like, the, the, you know, the, the fleet that would go to Mexico, right? Yeah, yeah, the treasure plates. get that, but mostly the sugar or other commodities. Well, that their whole systems back then, their economic systems were were uh, all about what was there? It was mercantilism. Mercantilism, right? And so it's it's about exclusivity, right? You can't do this without doing that because it has to be under. It's it's all about hitting the right check boxes so that we maximize profits. They sort of misunderstood what, what profits were, right? Profits is everybody benefiting, basically, is what I think of it as. Um, what they're saying is, if anybody else benefits, then it hurts me. Yeah. 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 Yes. The and the, that's the thinking to- behind behind when when my book gets pirated, I'm losing money. It's the same kind of thinking. It's mercantilist. It's not really like um, the more modern way. You know, if if Spain is really good at growing grapes and in, uh, Scotland's really good at growing uh, sheep, <laughs> you know, they <laughs> both benefit when they trade wine for for uh, wool. And it's true. Scotland's not great at growing grapes, and they definitely have a lot of uh, cool lands for sheep to get cold in and need some hair right so <laughs> those sunny uh those sunny hills of spain and italy really good at growing tasty grapes and they have a surplus this is uh, the non um uh i mean that's non scarce it's a scarcity situation but it's about reducing scarcity so that everybody benefits and when you do have a situation where something is infinitely replicable, like anything on YouTube. The scarcity is not the problem, it's the attention, right? How do I get myself out there more? Pirates pirates had those flags, well, I guess people, that's how people, they got their people, name out there. But people still need to make a living. Patreon, bud. Uh, not, not, every, not everybody has the wherewithal to, to follow that model. Or they so. do it like me. Like, who was the wherewithal to negotiate with these publishers and recording? Oh my god! Well, yeah, well, yeah, well, well, yeah, there's, yeah, there's that too. I know but that's going to seem easy. Compared to but that. but uh, the thing is, is Evan, the reason you're writing uh, books about Philip K. Dick is not because uh, you're hoping to make a massive profit, right? It's because you're interested yeah. in the subject and you get your income from a different place, just like I do. I don't get my income from all the podcast ads I put on because I have only done it twice. And the reason I did it is because both times somebody came to me and said, I've got a product that I think fits your thing. And I said, you know what? You're right. You do. And I'm happy to help. It has nothing to do with uh, me trying to make money from my awesome website because it's the wrong topic. I should be talking about supermodel asses and cryptocurrency if i want to make money <laughs> and i'm not talking about Next either song, very often. Audio. <laughs> right it'd be a slightly different website but it'd be a lot more profitable i think um because those are 
those are popular things. 19th century poetry and uh, the other stuff I put up is not super interesting for most people. So it's the, the profits are not there. But the whole, the whole um, being employed outside of your job as an artist is a completely legitimate thing. And it's, it should be, it, that's what traditionally academia could do, right? But academia seems even more broken than a lot of other old industries. I guess that's a different show, though. That's a basic income show or something. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I'd be interested in that. But I want to get a. I want to get. There's a a Mac Reynolds novel. I keep talking about this book. It's all about uh, guaranteed universal income, and the major pr- plot point of the novel is is there's not enough work, and people are angry about it. They, they all have incomes every month. They're all supplied with enough, uh, you know, food and drink and and sex. What they don't have is satisfying work. Huh? Say that again. So this Marxist idea that that work is what makes us human. Yeah, I, I mean, literally, we need stuff to do, right? We need stuff to do, and, and work we is not just. Can all be just... eaters? Yeah. I just think we're so trained to only. Like, I think the eight-hour day is, is great of a contribution that is. It created this idea of eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will, right? This what we will was never seen productive. It was it became for any American just sitting in front of the TV watching sports or right. whatever, right? And, you know, this division between, like, there's the work and the leisure. Yeah, or the two weeks of holiday that. every there's year, right? There's nothing to do that's valuable that's not compensated. Right. Two weeks of holiday we is wrong. I, Paul, you, you take your two weeks every year, right? I I try to. This this year this year was difficult because of issues. I couldn't take I couldn't take my vacation until October. So Yeah. And I my, I have a very modest income, but I also have very modest expenses. I haven't had a vacation since ever. <laughs> since I was a kid. Yeah. Like I don't to, but there are times when I I don't work, right? But that it's not it's not like I get I, I've never been employed by a regular salary, right? So I don't mm-hmm. you either if you're an entrepreneur you just work all the time, or if you're whatever I am, which is kind of an entrepreneur I guess you just work when there's work, and then all the other time is for working on things that aren't money paying, right? Which are fun or uh, which are enjoyable. And that, yeah, that eight-hour work week. That um, how's it in um, in the movie They Live, right? You, you put on the glasses and he says, yeah. Uh, yeah. eight hours of work, eight hours of play, eight hours of uh, asleep." And then uh, <laughs> the magazines on the magazine rack. He looks over and what's it say? It says uh, he's got the glasses off and it says like uh, "new look" or something on the cover. And then he says. Marry and reproduce, right? It's like, yep. The, the, we are we get trained into the. You are going to go to university so you can get a good job at a corporation and work there all your life. Um, that hasn't been happening for the last forty years. Um, it might have happened in the fifties to the sixties and the seventies, but it sort of stopped after that, at least for most people. Yeah, that those days are. We learn from two groups of people, it seems to me. One is the people who find ways. 
maybe as you're describing here, to be productive even if it's not like official work, right? Doing stuff that's valuable, maybe not remunerative, but it's valuable as a contribution. It's totally useful labor power, I guess, in the Marxist language, right? That there's those people, but there's also, I think, there's a lot we can learn from like the straight up bums and hobos, the people in France are on the dole who can find meaning in life just sitting around drinking coffee or wine. Yeah, you're, you're talking about the Italians who go to work go to work in the morning at 10 and, and go home at 2 and then spend the rest of the time with their lives and their family, right? I think, like, when people say, oh, what am I going to do if I'm not working? Well, you're going to be a father and a husband or a wife. That's all valuable, right? Yeah, and you're going to be fixing the sink and building the yeah. fence and uh, doing some watercolors, right? Yeah. So I'm not so worried about this end of work thing. I just think so many of us don't really know how to be productive outside of work. It's it's not uh, it's, like you can't keep track of it in in I mean people are keeping track of their steps now, but you can't treat, keep track of how much time you've uh, you can't like judge the quality of the time you spent with your daughter. Yeah. There's no tracker for that, right? <laughs> you can, you can no compete with on Facebook. You can't you can't rate hours spent with daughter time. <laughs> maybe, could, maybe they'll maybe that yeah, like, somebody'll do that. A good example of a society that's been responding to their fertility crisis kind of with more work cuz they're not really open to immigrants and it's hard to assimilate in Japan. So they've been they have this low fertility problem. Like, I think their fertility rate is less than one, meaning the average woman will have less than one child child in her life. What country are you talking about? Japan. Okay, yes, Japan. Got it. And so they're talking about at the end of the century maybe having 50 million people in Japan, and they have like wow. 170 now. It's really kind of scary. Instead of letting, I think they're going to have to let in immigrants, I guess. But you they know, don't. They're, they're not really is, but, tuned to it. The response lately has been like more work. Like we need more women to work in the workforce, and that seems that's going to make the fertility problem worse. It's going to make it worse, yeah. <laughs> yeah, both now both people are tired after working twelve hours. Yeah, you know, less children yeah. than that. It's to me. Yeah, have you ever heard of the Dins? D I N S. Double income, no sex. Oh. oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. exactly what's going on in Japan. Something yeah. like 4% of couples in Japan report not having any sex. And more surprisingly, 60% of young men don't date. And something like 40% of young women in Japan don't date. This is the future. Everything that happens in Japan happens uh, in the future. So this is where we're That's all headed. But it's kind of good. I mean, we need we need a smaller population footprint for the for the planet, you know, I would like to uh, have a truck and roll coal all around town, but it's bad for the environment if me and everybody else does it. But if uh, it's just truck, me, then the to, environment I, can totally absorb that. I'm trying to imagine you in a semi Jesse, I'm just not seeing it. Maybe not. But, uh, you know, it might be fun to do. It, it, this is why all those end of the world movies where there's, the, you know, like the quiet earth, but there's the last man on earth. Right, and he's alone, and he doesn't. You, you guys seen this movie? I've read the book. The Quiet Earth. This is a New Zealand you mean movie. The Shelley book, Last Man. No, it's uh, it's called The Quiet Earth. Okay. Um, I've read the great book. movie. You probably can't get it on DVD, but you can definitely torrent it. Uh, 
And it's about a guy who discovers he's the last man on Earth. It's from 1985. Um, and he, he, he drives around town. Uh, it's kind of like, I guess, I Am Legend, you know. Um, except there's no zombies to fight. And he sort of s- starts going crazy because there's nothing to, there's no one there. There's no, nothing to do. He doesn't have to work to survive because there's food everywhere and there's gas. Every time he runs out of gas in a car, he can just pull over and get another car, right? Doesn't even have to fill up the gas tank. Um, and he eventually, you know, is talking to himself and then, oh, he's not the last man on earth. Right? So, uh, we can lose our focus, uh, if we have nothing to do. And that's why people like to embrace Things that are countable, fungible, especially men. They love getting jobs where they can compete with salaries or points or whatever it is. It's sort of just part of the collecting instinct, right? But- I, I agree fully with the general idea. I just think in this capitalist world, it's like we get this idea that if it's remunerative, if we get a paycheck for it, it's valuable. Mm. And, and if you and, don't get a paycheck, if it's not like this time with daughter, that's not really valuable. So I. It can't be valued, right? There's no, there's no way to put a number to it. Yeah. There, there, there's something to that. I just think it's all socially useful. I think it's a book called Three Cheers, Four Cheers for Anarchism. Maybe it's called Four Cheers for Anarchism by James Scott, who's actually an agrarian kind of sociologist, political scientist. And he just throws it out there like the how the question he sort of asked, it sounds like he can improve empirically, but he says, like, how many, how much money has been saved in mental health care by the lo- local bartender? Huh. Right? Like, we don't think that going to the bar or hanging out with friends at the bar is like socially valuable labor time. But, you know, it, it's something people need for like mm-hmm. a, a balanced life, I guess. Yeah, it's called Two Cheers for Anarchism. Two and, Cheers. And the subtitle is Six Pieces of Six Pieces on Autonomy, Dignity, uh, Meaningful Work and Play. That sounds like it's a good book. essay. It's a basically a little essay on, on anarchism. And there's an audiobook available. I'm gonna pirate this right now. Yeah, it's 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 fun. It's short too. It's probably a two hours audiobook. Yeah, it's only two hundred pages, so I would assume it's six essays because of the subtitle. Six easy pieces on autonomy, dignity, meaningful work, and play. Yeah, it's not the best work on anarchism by any stretch of the imagination, but I like James Scott's other work on agrarian, on like kill people in Southeast Asia. It's good stuff. His best book, I think, is The Art of Not Being Governed, which is all about the hill people of Southeast Asia and how they actually, the idea there is that they actually fled to the hills. That's the the Hmong. The Hmong. The states. Is that yeah, he talks about the Hmong. Yeah, the Hmong are part of the story. They've got yeah. a really interesting culture. Yeah, but it was actually normally the idea is that they just sort of lived in the hills, but Scott says they actually were fleeing states, fleeing conscription and taxation. We have and, we have uh, uh, there was a group in Canada that came from uh, Russia. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the name. Uh, I want to say Hutterites, but that's not the another group um and they they fled russia's you know serfdom state uh before before the revolution and they came to bc and 
they were not they didn't want to participate in the local government didn't want to be counted didn't want to serve in the army any of that stuff and uh, the way they 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 protested um it gets a lot of it it got a lot of attention when i was a kid i guess um is they would become nude Oh, <laughs> when in, the, in, in BC? Oh God! Yeah, we have a lot of we sort of because it's the far west, right? You know, everybody flees to the west, and this is as far as you can flee. Um, they would uh, to protest against you know being counted and being um, volunteered for things and taxed and all the things that they didn't want to be involved with. They they became nudists, and it wasn't because they were. Uh, really into nudism. It was a to show. It's a nonviolent way of showing you are abasing yourself and that you're not participating. And I, I, as a kid, I didn't understand what the hell was going on. Not that I was hanging out, in, but in the news when I heard about it, um, I didn't understand what it was about. But now it makes a lot more sense. It's 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 a way for even Christians, and they were Christians. Um, who are trying to um, preserve a kind of stateless existence, a simple, non-let's-get-involved-in-World-War-One-World-War-Two existence, to make the government not, not treat them the way they are, without actually, you know, resisting in the normal way. And it's not like they really like nudism. It's, it was a tool. I just find that fascinating now. What the hell's their name? I can't even remember now. Buddhism. BC. Uh, Russian. Dukabors, that's them. Dukabors. A spiritual Christian religious group of Russian origin. Um, often categorized as folk Protestants. <laughs> they are distinguished as pacifists who lived in their own villages, rejected personal materialism, worked together, and developed a tradition of oral history and memorizing and singing hymns and verses. Before 1886, they had a series of single leaders. The ancient origin of the Dukabors is uncertain. There we go. Interesting. There we go. To take his followers away from the corrupting influence of the non-Dukabor, Dukabors uh, found better conditions uh, uh, for agriculture in 1908 and bought large tracts of land in southeastern British Columbia uh, near Grand Forks. Oh, this actually might tie into a story that I've read. Hmm. Interesting. Robert A. Heinlein's short story, Year of the Jackpot, briefly mentions the Dukabors. Yeah. I didn't remember that. I remember Year of the Jackpot, but I didn't yeah, remember that's that. That's his first story. Oh, isn't that interesting? The, the, the world is just so big, wise, and buried that there's all these little corners in it, in it that you just don't expect. Beautiful, a beautiful uh, architecture they got. I mean, I mean, I knew there was uh, Russian communities in southeast Alaska in the islands, all the churches. I'd like to see them someday, but I've never heard of these people though. They're all around us, these people. Yeah, the New World's great that way. And and that's a that's the thing, right? Is countries you can't flee from Japan's um, culture by staying in it. So mm -hmm. there are still Japanese emigrants, right? People leaving. 
but there aren't any there's almost nobody moving to japan except you know for work because of the way their 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 cultural preservation their cultural strength is actually hurting them as a population but mm-hmm. uh they do get to maintain their their old ways it's fascinating because korea has the opposite take right they they recently committed to massive uh everybody's learning english right all schools are teaching English, just like China's doing that too, right? Well, it's, that's no, not so much China. I think, but that's where my advice for Taiwan. I think my advice for Taiwan is because they also have low fertility rate, like it's a little bit over one. Um, so my advice to Taiwan was like, learn English, legalize gay marriage, let all the immigrants from Southeast Asia in, and let them stay. You know, become as non-Chinese as possible. Mm-hmm. And all those cultural arguments. That China uses to make claim to they don't have the they would only have the land argument. You know, yeah, China wouldn't want them as much if if they were much more yeah, culturally they're different. Less Chinese. Yeah, but I, I you know, they they are talking about making English an official language of Taiwan. So I'm kind of for that just to dilute the the Chinese culture, which I'm not a big fan of, anyways. I've spent also this time in Chinese in Taiwan, China, but. You know, I'm I'm not enamored with the culture the way some expats are. <laughs> it's easy to either be uh, enamored if you're away from it, right? Um, Maybe but, it's like I don't know. Like, like when I see the Great Wall or think of the Great Wall, I just I just think of the the, the hundreds of thousands of bodies buried underneath it. <laughs> like I, I get no, I I don't get any. I don't understand the pride in that. Mm. That changes feel. Or this pride and kind of cultural unity. Maybe it's because I'm a new worlder, right? And I'm well, if tourist. you're inside your own culture, it's very hard to see outside of it, right? And mm-hmm. and China was a hermit kingdom, and, and that's what all that 19th century stuff was. All, we got to liberate them, get them out, get those markets open, all that stuff. And now they've sort of they they get to have it both ways. They're the cultural imperialists, or no, sorry, the irregular industrial imperialists, and now they also have their own great firewall so but they're still cultural imperialists because they're like those people in the west they should be chinese yes but that's yeah. you know that's literally they're taking over the land as well right yeah, yeah. my wife's research is on is on the frontier anthropologists in china how back in the 40s and 50s they, were, they started to write these books saying like these people they're they look different than us but deep down they're really chinese <laughs> Well, Chinese might just mean human, you know, at some point, yeah. right? If you open it up wide enough, you're human. You use chopsticks, and you can say "ni hao" when you're Chinese. Well, that's uh, there's a really fun theory about. Uh, we're, we're probably off our topic, but um, there's a really fun theory about why so many uh, Anglican ministers are are atheist. <laughs> it's because um, <laughs> they made it. They made it, uh, Anglicanism mandatory. Right. Um, if you wanted to go to school, if you wanted to have any public office, because they're trying to get people out of Catholicism and convert the whole country over, they made it so uh, necessary to be a like it's almost like being an, a communist member of the Communist Party in China, right? Very few of the yeah. members of the Communist Party in China probably are well, at least in the top end, are committed to uh, all the points of communism. More, it's like they want to have power, and this is how you do it, right? This is actually one of China's big problems now, is because 
there's these labor protest strikes in the South, and it's getting supported by a lot of young communists who actually like they're brainwashed with this stuff. They they were forced to read this stuff and they actually believe it. They're like, yeah, worker power and workers control the means of production, and these are capitalist firms. <laughs> the and shame of teaching the, the, the truth, truth right? Because. Yeah. They're basically just saying what communists have been saying for a century. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.